podcast my name is penguin welcome back this is your home for agorism decentralism localism and anti-authoritarian ideas um thank you for joining us back i'm here with my usual co-host set gora um at the homestead we're uh just have uh him and i discussing uh various topics that we want to get off of our chest and i thought since we both thought since uh we had uh several episodes with guests that we wanted to bring you some content with, with just him and I uh, going back and forth. A lot of these topics, I think, are going to be things where we're going to have uh, guests on that will um, speak to those topics, but we kind of want to introduce them here, mostly just kind of rant and rave about what is on our minds and uh, a lot of topics that maybe not have fit into our previous shows. Um Sec, uh, welcome. Is anything uh, you wanted to bring up in the world of agorism? Uh, nothing, nothing new to report. Just gardening season. But uh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, guys, for listening. Um, yeah, we've had a lot of great. Uh, I don't know how many episodes with guests. About five or so, and they were all great. But four, uh, I, I agree. I think if four. Yeah. Okay, four. Uh. There, it was all all dynamite guests, and uh, that was awesome. But it, I think it was time to kind of uh, have a sort of just a me and you uh, episode where we can talk about some some random things. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I'm I'm looking forward to doing this a little bit more of a laid back, freewheel kind of uh, kind of an episode. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's, it's definitely time and. Um... I don't know. Did you want to go into our first topic? I think the thing that the one thing that we wanted to talk about on the show that we haven't had a chance to yet is uh, the concept of revolution. Um, we, we, I think I got a lot of my ideas from you, so I want you to go ahead and just like uh, kind of shoot it off. Well, let me let me read you a couple of definitions, and, and this will lead into what like my first problem with the concept of revolution is. So. From Merriam-Webster, the definition of revolution is a progressive. Well, this is this is important. This isn't uh, doesn't apply to what we were talking about, but this is an important definition. A progressive motion of a body around an axis so that any line of the body parallel to the axis returns to its initial position while remaining parallel to the axis in transit. So coming back around to where you started. That's a you know, revolution around the sun. But in terms of politics, uh, so there's uh, several definitions. Uh, a sudden, radical, or complete change, a fundamental change in political organization. Uh, 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 
the overthrow or renunciation of one government or ruler and the substitution of another by the government. Um, the, the rest is more about uh, various technological revolutions. But the reason I read those is I, I don't necessarily have a problem with sudden or radical change um, or a, a fundamental um, what was the other one? A fundamental change in political organization. I don't. We obviously don't have a problem with that either. I mean, I could. I can is, think of something. I could. I could think of maybe the sudden is maybe not characterizing what we're ultimately going to discuss. That's theorizing. Oh, I mean, sure. I mean, sure, sure. I mean, then we're just talking about the matter can, of how how quick we want to do it. But sure, yes, I, I agree. But the the idea is a fundamental change. But um, these two definitions are lumped in with the overthrow or renunciation of one government or ruler and the substitution of another by the government. So that's that's where I kind of have a problem. And I, and I know you might think similarly is, and we've talked about this before, um, you know, when, when one thinks about revolution, one thinks about, you know, the Bolsheviks or the, the Spanish Revolution or um, the American Revolution and and throughout history they've they've all more or less led to the same thing and uh, which you know they end up being the worse tyrants than the ones before and there, there's reasons for that and and we've discussed it on other episodes but um, essentially to um, to you know to rally the force necessary to defeat a uh, state military you need um, very a lot of centralized power and uh, armed forces and, and a lot of brutality, um, most of which gets turned on you once the you know the revolution is over. Yeah, you need to you need to make alliances and combine with you know, various interest groups because it's not going to be one monolithic group of the people rising up. And people need to realize like whether it's commies or uh, you know patriot militias, the the the, the people. Are not united. I mean, it's fairly obvious, and then they're not going to all rise up in some kind of in, uh, interest in math mess. Um, whether it's the proletariat or the you know the silent moral majority in in, in the United States, like uh, no, there's um, lots of different people with lots of different overlapping interest groups, and um, some people have power, some people have less power, and uh, you're going to have to unite with people, various people with power. And, and um, yeah, with power, with the ability to project force, and those people are, you know, it's going to revolve around to where they're going to be the ones um, if they're able to marshal those forces um, together to uh, defeat the uh, organization with the monopoly on on legit, you know, so-called legitimate violence. They are going to be the um, the, the next power brokers and the ones that are. Uh, taking on that role. Right. So if you're going to defeat a monopoly on violence, you have to create an organization of violence that can rival that monopoly on violence. You're meeting them on their playing so, field. Right. Exactly. Now, I'm not necessarily... Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not necessarily opposed to um, violence against the state in all cases. Um, it, it can... Uh, I Okay, let's talk about that in two ways. One, I think... I believe it to be... Uh, Ethically justified, morally justified, however you want to define that, 
I don't think there's any question that uh, we're, you know, any violent action against the state could be considered defensive at this point. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I don't think it is wise in most cases. I think it is counterproductive to our own ends. Um, whether that's ethically justified or not, it, it will not achieve um, our desired goal in most instances. So um, I, I think there's some few cases um, that it could be warranted and or effective, but I, that would be a, a very uh, a secondary to other methods of achieving change, uh, you know, such as uh, building rival institutions. Yeah, that's the pragmatic. Person. That's the pragmatic argument. Is um, right. Yeah, the, we're talking about the moral and the pragmatic argument in the same. Same sentence, but that's that's um, but that's true. That's the pragmatic argument is that basically in most cases you're not going to be able to um, really achieve achieve goals. And achieve it's not going to be the best or even a possible or feasible method to like achieve the goals that we would want to see. I mean, it's a spasm of violence you might let out some rage, but it's ultimately a you're probably not going to win, but it's probably not going to achieve any sort of, you know, progress towards any kind of goals that we have. Right, especially the kind of violence where it's like, well, we all need to unite and arm ourselves and go march on some building somewhere. If you are going to engage in violence against the state, it should be very small, individual actions, very, very covert. You know what I mean? It shouldn't be like some sort of centralized revolution. Yeah, it's a fantasy. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it is. The worst, the worst possible outcome of um, the fantasy of revolution is that you win. Because now, <laughs> because now, either you, yourself, or the people who needed to, uh, to commit all that violence and brutality, they're now your new rulers, or now you're the ruler, or etc. Very rarely does, has revolution ever brought about freedom. It can bring about a new government. Um, but it, it very rarely it, it brings about freedom. Like uh, the, the American Revolution, the colonists were almost, even during the war, were almost immediately uh, worse off than they ever were under the British crown. And there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons for that. But one, like we said, you know, every revolutionary becomes a conservative once they've won. You know, uh, uh, the um, the violence needed. You know, all that money, resources, violence, brutality that you needed to fight the British. Well, now all those people have all the power because they're the ones with the, the most money, the most, you know, most well-armed, the most um, capable of inflicting violence. They are now your new overlords. So the other reason is that actually, and this is why I read that first um, definition of revolution where you, you come back to where you began. So people will put up with a lot for a very long time until they're, fed up with it and they won't put up with anything anymore, put up with it anymore. And they revolt. So this acts as a reset for the state in a lot of ways, because now it's um, once you've won the revolution, um, now it's, the, you know, it's the revo- it's the people state now. It's the revolutionary state. It's the, the state that's based on your principles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you just fought a, you know, a bloody war to, to win your uh, independence or, or what have you, and you don't want to fight another war, and uh, you're, you're willing to put up with a lot more from this new revolutionary state, 
than you ever would have put up with from the old state. So that's why it very quickly, um, it, it acts as almost a reset. There's a, there's an almost time period, a clicking clock, clock, if you will, of the amount of time and, and the amount of things of people will put up with from a state before it boils over and they revolt. So you've reset that clock by revolting. Um, and this is, uh, this, this is actually beneficial for the state long term because, um, you know, you've kind of lost, you've you got a clean, that state has a clean slate, so to speak, you know? Yeah. Uh, you're, you're starting over. Let's look at the American Revolution. I think that's um, a good thing that a lot of our, I don't think nearly all, but a lot of our guests, I mean, our, sorry, our audience are from the United States and the rest of them probably have some idea of the American Revolution um, and something we can kind of discuss. Uh, you know, so let's see who who played a role in the revolution. It was financed by you know wealthy colonists, um, people with power, you know, power that were power brokers that had some wealth behind them. They they funded it, financed it, got tried to get some funding, and um, I will make alliances overseas like with the French. But um, it wasn't so, a lot of land speculators and bankers. Yes, yep. Very rich, rich and powerful people. So that's the thing about this about the American Revolution. There is no one reason that all of the people fought the revolution for. Mm -hmm. So there's many people that fought it for, uh, they wanted freedom. They wanted more freedom in their lives, and they didn't believe that the British crown um, provided any kind of services that was worth the the trampling of their freedoms. But then you had a lot of other people who just wanted to be the new oligarchs. They didn't want to be under the British rule and have to pay them this or that. They just, they wanted people to be under their rule. Yeah, and George, um, I think it's the third, King George, he was, he was way over there. He was, he was across a thousand miles of ocean or so. And, um, yes. the, the, so the revolution with this new continental government brought the government right here to the shores of the, of the very colonies. So, I mean, if just from the pragmatic aspect of like the, the little guy, as we say, I mean, the government became a lot closer. Yeah, and more effective because now it's, you know, the people enforcing it and making the laws right down the road, you know, like instead of a couple thousand miles away, where they have to get on a ship and send over a force and et cetera, et cetera, to, to kind of enforce things, you can get away with less. Yeah. So, and, then, I, and I'm, I'm not kidding when I say that life for colonists was and uh, the trampling of freedoms was almost worse, almost immediately, like some in some aspects during the war itself. For the colonists than it ever was under the British rule. Like uh, uh, the British Crown never instituted uh, property taxes or uh, conscription, as far as I remember. And um, immediately the Continental Army, Army was conscripting uh, conscripting um, people. Uh, it was hanging Quakers in town squares for refusing to fight um, because they were pacifists. Uh, George Washington ordered. The, the hanging of Quakers in town squares because they refused to fight in his army. Hmm. Well, and this and, goes to what you were saying about the. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. This is what you're going to say about the idea that that people will it resets the clock where people will put up with something. The first the first reason why people might put up with stuff is because during the period where the fighting is actually occurring, you might they might say, "Hey, wait a minute, there's a war going on. We got to make sacrifices. We got to put up with this." during this period of conflict. So that immediately puts you into this mode 
And then, okay, they've, they've just won the war. They've, they're trying to set up things and figure things out. And, and I can see exactly why it would re- kind of reset the cycle of, um, you know, people attitudes towards the state. If I was in their shoes. Yes, and, and plus they just fight, fought a long, bloody war and they don't want to fight another one. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so they're going to, they're, they're like, well, we're stuck with this now kind of thing. We don't want to fight another revolution. And there almost was another revolution against the Federalists. Um, in, in the, in the, well, in the Americas, that there almost was several revolutions that, but they couldn't get enough support because they just fought a very long and bloody war. So people just said, you know, threw, kind of threw up their hands and, and yeah, to, to speak more broadly, yes, now people, uh, are less likely to want to, um, to act against this new state because, um, you know, it's a, like you said, it's a time of turmoil. And there's a war going on, and these people are war-weary. And also, supposedly, this new government is set up based on your principles. Well, supposedly. Oh, on so paper, it sounded great. Right, right. Very on progressive. Paper, Very, exactly. So you're, yeah. you're probably more likely to give it a uh, give it a chance anyway. And then, so then that kind of resets the cycle of, uh, I don't know, uh, of people's tempers, I guess, of what they're willing to put up with from, from the new state, but. Um, to re- really, uh, in, the, in the long term, uh, revolution is actually a uh, benefit for the state in the in the long term, um, because it, it it provides that reset, that release valve, you know, uh, for for people. Now, like I said, I may I may not have we may not have a problem with these other two definitions. A sudden radical or complete change or a fundamental change in political organization. Um, but I don't think that we should. There's got to be another word that we can use to not associate with um, these failed strategies of the past thousands of years of we all have to rise up in some central organization and violently overthrow using arms um, as a primary method, there's got to be another word to differentiate between what we want, um, which is, you know, sort of change from the bottom up, you know, uh, building rival institutions. I mean, I'm not even opposed to, like, small-scale covert action. I don't think we're at that point necessarily yet. Yeah. Uh, but uh, even sabotage that kind of thing. I'm not opposed to these things, but they must be secondary to uh, more positive um, strategy uh, methods. You're, you're hitting on something. You're hitting on something really important. You're hitting on something really important, which is, um, I think, kind of goes against the other definition too, where, you, where with the sudden political political change is um, the building of institutions. But you can't suddenly build institutions, and right. and the whole idea of a mass revolt doesn't isn't inclusive of building institutions. Basically, if if that's going to happen, that would have already had to have been happening. And frankly, I mean, certain things have to be done in some sort of way, or ought to be done by people joining together in in, in free association, just certain enterprises, certain things that make human um, you know interaction in society, if you will, um, function. And um, they can look very much different than the status quo or, or what existed under some other states. But like, you got to make some sort of institutions uh, 
you know. Yes, we have to have these in place. We have to have, you know, organizations, institutions, and um, services and that kind of thing in place first. Because if there's a gap and, or a void, somebody, somebody's going to fill the void and it'll be the most powerful. Yes. yes. Uh, and I forgot yeah. who said it. Uh, okay, so there's, a, you know, an old Rothbard quote that said, you know, if there's a button that could remove the state tomorrow, I would push it. And then somebody else countered to that, and he said, no, if, if you push the button to remove the state today, there'd be another state tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. if you remove the federal government not today, and it just completely ceased to exist, there'd be another state in, in a minute of a week. Why is that? Because there is a market demand for such a monopoly on violence. We are in the minority as anarchists of not desiring a monopoly on violence and law. So what we have to do is to uh, build alternatives to a monopoly on violence and law in all aspects of our lives and others' lives, starting with ourselves. We have to, you know, provide for ourselves. We have to make more freedom in our own lives. We have to make our own relationships as far from uh, violence uh, state power, violence, and coercion as we can. And we have to start, you know, there and work our way outward to building these relationships with other people so they no longer desire a uh, monopoly on, you know, blood, blood-soaked monopoly on violence and law. So uh, I, I wouldn't push the button tomorrow. Uh, it just, it would be a lesson in futility it would mean nothing. It would be symbolic of anything. It wouldn't achieve my goal in the long term. Hmm. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Let, let's, let's talk about those kind of, um, we've used the term dual power before arrangements. Sure. Um, this alternative institutions. Um, I think the average person would see the institutions, and this is the, always the, uh, big counterclaim to libertarian ideas, is they would see these alternative, these institutions, um, that the state maintains, well, the point I'm trying to make is they don't maintain a monopoly, but they maintain a near monopoly or they are the biggest player in. And they say, well, you know, who's, it's the classic who will build the roads, obviously. Who will be the police? Who will, be, who will put out the fires? Who will run the hospitals and regulate them, the healthcare industry? Who will make sure the food's not tainted? And frankly, like those things do exist. And you can get the very most, like mundane, you can go to, I mean, academic or beltway libertarians that are that will be ex- to give you excellent resources on this. This is an this is an insurrectionary, but here in the status quo, we have volunteer fire departments. We have organizations like um, like uh, I think the stock exchanges and and such that that function off of um, non governmental rules and historically they always did and plenty of organizations that do that are um, largely um, that are I mean they're heavily regulated you know on the outside now but plenty of organizations that, that charter their own rules um, private arbitration all, all sorts of um, methods um, that again overseen by the, the state courts so they can't exceed certain bounds in any direction but like there's private arbitration there's um, private security and private cops that, that gets into a whole another debate but there are ways of 
of defending yourselves, of, of joining in mutual aid, just like you have a volunteer fire department, volunteer emergency medical, um, volunteer disaster relief. Roads are obviously not built by government workers. They're built by companies. You can just go by a road under construction and see this being built by a co- built by a company. Why couldn't people charter a road into, into through or out of a community? Um, and you can do the list just goes on and on of things that uh, already exist. There's a, a pattern for and there's all sorts of cooperative um, there's, there's energy co-ops, there's apartment co-ops. I mean, there's everything. It's almost a form of everything that would have to exist with some exceptions. Um, right. Well, so we already have. In a free society, we're only limited by our own imagination. We have, we would have like endless options of ways to organize various services and, um, you know, dispute resolution and and whatever the the needs of the people are, we would have endless options only limited by our own innovation. Now we have one option, and that's the the state. So what you say is true. There's there's tons of logical reasons on you know that you know real life examples that exist now and and theoretical um, methods of of um, alternatives to state power thing is uh, some people will be convinced by that right uh, you can you can provide them a hey here's something you never thought of you know what if we could do it this this and this instead of doing it by the state which is just you know it's just a violent gang but we could do this another way you know on the community level voluntarily etc and some people will be convinced by just that argument I think a lot of people are going to have to see it work in action. Well, that's kind of the point I'm making, though, is that that it, I understand that some of these things, some people's experiences only include the state providing such services. But we do know right. for a fact that, that these things are possible on some scale, and I'm, and I'm sure they'd be possible on a much uh, larger scale and scope. And that takes a little bit of imagination, but we're not. it's not just some sort of, you know, libertarian fantasy world. I mean, you can look at things that, do exist, have existed, or exist in other countries where the state institutions aren't particularly strong. And, uh, you know, but unfortunately, I think people think, well, um, the state has some sort of special properties, you know, where they can provide these services without, I don't know, some sort of violent, but uh, some sort of bias or, um, like more efficiently, efficiency, which is just absolutely ridiculous, but, you know, I don't know. It, 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 it's amazing how it, how these things seem so fantastical, and yet you know, clearly, I mean, there's other ways to look at it too. Like, um, you know, firefighters would they cease to exist without the state funding the fire the fire stations? I mean, where, where would those people I mean, go? Would they not fight fires? Obviously not. Yeah. Um, but there there actually might be uh, other methods than just having like fire stations. Um, so I've heard other suggestions of like, um, so if uh, uh, fire prevention would be a, a much bigger thing, I think, and this is kind of getting in the weeds and a lot of speculation, but um, if you were um, for paying for a service or um, your community, um, you know, had a, 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 a you know, a fire prevention 
uh, or fire fighter kind of thing, uh, cooperative. Whatever the case may be, it seems like there would be more of an incentive to uh, prevent fires in the first place. So you might be spending a lot more time setting up um, fire suppression systems in people's houses, especially if it was a uh, like an, in, through an insurance company of sorts, mm-hmm. because it's in, in their incentive to not have to pay you to for your burned stuff. So they'd rather prevent pay to prevent the the fire rather than you know pay somebody to come put your fire out and then pay for your burnt stuff. You know what I mean? So it may be a different, it, the incentives would be a, a bit different, uh, but the end result would be the same, very similar or even possibly even better because it might gear more towards prevention than reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Well, a lot of what firefighters do is respond to medical emergencies and car crashes right. and stuff now. And, and frankly, like, so you go back to what happened before the professionalized paramedics and uh, the fire departments were, professionalizing for that with car crashes for example they'd send a wrecker in the in the hearse and they'd just yank you out however and they'd kill half the people they pulled out but imagine if we could if we would have the same thing in community mutual aid you know uh cooperatives but with all the modern techn medical technology and know-how and and um i mean we have volunteer fire departments now i think we could have all the professionalism and and uh, without the without the waste, without all the p- people uh, getting the salary because it's a socialized service, on, on you know, just just what I understand, studies show there's far more firefighters than there is a need for. And of course, there's overcommitment of resources without any incentive to kind of back. And it, frankly, um, a socialized service is going to run run far less efficiently than either a uh, a well, for profit a profit capitalist model. Or a communal model or a cooperative model. All, all of those have, are going to have far better incentives to provide better service for less. Right. It's more responsive to the needs of the people, right, than, than, a, than a state sanctioned model. That's absolutely true. Yeah. But again, so yes, there is, there is lots of examples of um, Similar things to what we would like to see in a free society that exists even now in our in our state captive society, um, but I, I just think we need uh, I need we need more of those. It needs to be an, an over almost an overwhelming obvious answer that we can just show people. It can't be just that, also spaces where the state says, "Go ahead, do, you have our you have our permission to do, do your thing." You know exactly. Like even those volunteer. Fire uh, fighters or what have you. There's still a lot of them. Still uh, are provided resources by the state, mm-hmm. uh, and they're also chartered and sanctioned by by the state as well. So we need um, more examples of, uh, I guess, agorist sort of um, um, alternatives and and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I'm very interested from, in that from the state as possible. Yeah, I'm very interested in that. I'm, 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 you know, I'm totally interested in the idea of, you know, the so-called, you know, first responders and that those, um, those skill sets and those roles, which is obviously super important in society. And there's a huge demand. There's a huge demand for people's emergencies to be uh, responded to because we have the technology and know-how, and obviously those people afforded a, a lot of respect. Um, and 
rightly so, I think, in a lot of cases, because when people are in a medical emergency or a traffic accident or whatever, and let's not even go into, into cops, which obviously do provide some level of service too, um, because they have such a wide scope of duties. Um, you know, they people like having their emergencies responded to and uh, increasing their chances of surviving an emergency and saving their property and whatnot and keeping the roads clear of you know people dying left and right and um you know so there's a there's an inherent demand there and there's no magical button that these things need to um be provided by a state so i'm, I'm really interested in, in these ideas and in the, the somehow some way in, in in some in a stateless future or a uh a future progressing in that direction that you know we can work together to uh provide these services because there's tons and tons and tons of people that have these kind of skill sets for the EMTs or people that have some of the skill, some of the uh, useful skill sets that law enforcement has. Um, some of the ones that aren't just kind of generated by the state and um, you know, those can be put to good use just like uh, carpenters and, and farmers can in a um, stateless community. And I think you would see a lot more people with these skill sets. Um, and, and you're seeing that kind of now. Uh, people are uh, starting to realize that even if we have, they desire to have cops in the MT, they're going to be of uh, you know five, ten minutes, ten, fifteen minutes away in an emergency situation. So you know it might be better that you learn a few first aid skills and and learn how to handle a firearm and protect yourself, or or, or whatever the case may be. Um, Many times these first responders just can't get to you in time. So, you you know, it's, um, you know, it's better to depend on yourself first uh, or, you know, a neighbor or, or what have you. So I think uh, absent a monopoly on, on this, you, you would see a lot more people just uh, having some basic first aid skills or uh, I think that would be, become much more common. You can see more. There's, there's, they're pretty widespread. But I'll say this: there's also a lot of cops and EMTs. But there's a lot. The problem under the state with the socialized system is there's a lot of, there's a lot, way too many professional people providing these services. You know, professionally, as as their way of drawing a, you know, usually fairly comfortable salary. But I think you'd see more people providing, be able to provide these services, not as a professional, but as kind of more of a community community mutual aid aspect. And they'd be a lot closer, like you said. Yeah. Could be, yeah, it could be your neighbor, it could be you, it could be somebody in your house, exactly. Because these services are uh, hugely costly to the state, but they have the power of taxation and whatnot, so. And, yeah, and print money and, and grants and that sort of thing, yep. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this method um, is of achieving a, um, a stateless society is much more beneficial uh, than a uh, armed revolution. Uh, now, by this method, I mean building, uh, you know, rivaling structures to the state um, while, while also, you know, some people committing uh, uh, some, some direct uh, forceful action, we'll say, defensive action uh, against state actors and possibly infrastructure. Uh, but I think uh, that's going to have to come 
way further down the road. I don't, I don't think we're anywhere near there yet. Okay, um, let me butt in again. Let me butt in again. Okay. You said sure. uh, these institutions can be rival to state institutions, but um, they should also rival each other. Okay. They definitely want the market competition involved, free markets. Sure. Sure. And we're definitely not talking about a monopoly, a uh, Vanguard party, or anything like that. Nope, nope. Um, and that's what, uh, by the, these methods rivaling the state, I mean a, uh, a, a competitive and cooperative, peaceful uh, alternative to uh, state and you know monopolistic and coercive uh, methods and institutions. Oh yeah. Um, so um, organizing in relationships in the way that we would like to see them, um, that method rivaling uh, the way the state likes to uh, to provide these services. All right, very good, right. very good. Yeah, that was um, that was uh, the what I wanted to get my off my chest about about revolution. Now, I if somebody wants to define revolution as well, I just mean that we're gonna you know resist the state in some way or. We want to make, you know, fundamental changes to society. I have no problem with that, any of those things. I, I, even violent resistances, I have no problem with that uh, ethically. Um, I just don't think that we need to uh, inflate that with, like I said, uh, you know, a centralized violent overthrow of the state. Like these two things are vastly different concepts. And I think semantically we need to stay away from that. Um because it will not achieve our, our goals. And I, I don't think it serves us to even use the word because it, it associates us with, uh, or what we want with um, things that we, uh, methods that we don't necessarily agree with or find effective. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a purely consequentialist argument for gradualism. And I think it's, it's super convincing for me. Yeah, I'm a accelerationist gradualist. <laughs> like, I simultaneously want to speed up the collapse of the state, but while also uh, doing it in an incremental manner, while building uh, alternative systems to supplant the state, hmm. so that another street, uh, state is not created in its absence. Um, so I don't, I don't want this to happen tomorrow, but um, I, I have no problem, you know, kind of helping the state uh, collapse in on itself. Yeah, I think the people are out there. valuable. I think the people do, see, we have to understand this, the people do, like the actual individuals, I don't care about the state's institutions, I don't care about people that work for the state or don't or did or what their relationship is, but I'm saying the people out, people exist. If they physically exist, they have these skills and this, this knowledge and this uh, ability, and some are explicitly, you know, um, if they're not a uh, certain kind of, they're not an anarchist or something, there's certainly people that are not um, working for the state or on board with state power. There's people that have, I think, all the skill sets necessary uh, to do this just in, just in the half and i'm not saying it's half by number but half of people that are like you know anti-authoritarian or um skeptical of state power all the way to anarchists and then when you just count all the people that do certain jobs that there would be a market demand for if it albeit maybe in a, in a different form like people exist people are individuals people can fun institutions are just made up of individuals so the people exist out there to perform all these functions, there's a demand for, and not perform the functions that, that, that there really isn't a demand for. 
Well, even the people that work for the state can be very valuable to uh, our desired goals. And I'll give you an example. So, the um, in Nazi Germany, they enslaved some uh, Jewish folks into uh, forced labor camps. And um, if they didn't, they would have been killed, obviously. But uh, some of them were making arms and ammunition in factories. And what uh, um, a lot of these Jewish folks did is, as they were sending out these rifles to uh, the Germans on the front line, is they would just make the sights a little bit off. Or and we just make uh, this barrel is just... It's not, you can't see it by eye, but it's just a little bent. And they just did a really shitty job. And just, and this is what I mean by sabotage could be very effective. Um, and, you know, so, as sometime in the, in the distant future is people that are um, sympathetic to our ideas uh, and are in positions to do so could really cause a lot of problems for the state uh, apparatus. And much in the same way these Jews uh, uh, caused a lot of problems for the German war machine. And I, and I don't want to go into specifics here, but uh, I, you could use your imagination. Uh, I, this, to me, is far more effective than uh, smashing windows in the street, for example. Yeah. So if you could have, if you could have somebody that was, uh, I don't know, working in a... Um, working in um, data entry for some uh, state government or something, and whoops, I'm sorry, I, I just, I, I happen to delete all of the criminal records of all these nonviolent drug offenders. Uh, oops, I'm, I'm very sorry about that, and it was, you know, I just did it really, I, you know, I'm just grossly incompetent. Um, but you can't fire me because I work for the government, but I'm, I'm very sorry about that. that. That is, to me, is far more valuable resistance than Smashing in with Starbucks windows or whatever it is, uh, mm. because in terms, I'm not even saying I'm not judging these people at all, but um, I think that their resistance and violence towards the state and cops could be <laughs> could be done by better, better methods covertly that wouldn't end up in you know end up with them in jail or shot. So Doug Stanhope is a, a, a favorite comedian of mine. He says, you know, I was I was with you with Occupy. You know, I hate these banker bastards too, but what did you do? What did you accomplish? You stunk, a, stunk up a park for six months and played, made a drum circle. You know, by the time, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, you're, you're shouting and, 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 and holding signs and, and, you know, and just camping in a park. He's like, you could have gone into every... I hate these banker bastards too, and you could have gone into every uh, a branch of Bank of America, fifty uh, you know, and fifty man teams, and just clogged up their system uh, all day long, filing phony loan reports. You know what I mean? So we're just talking a different difference in in uh, tactics, I guess. You know, rather than overt violence towards you know states and corporations. You can achieve so much more covertly, and you—we can't win a war of attrition. We can't see more of us in jail or shot. So we have to 
choose our battles very wisely and don't get caught. So being out in uh, in an open place throwing uh, bricks at police cars, um, you're doing not doing anybody any good, and you're just you're getting yourself put in jail. And we don't need any more of us in jail. Um, you could have done uh, much more. I mean, you could have cut the brakes of every MRAP in the city at nighttime where, where no one can see you by yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? And not, and you would have had a better chance of not getting caught. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't, uh, I don't think they have the kind of popular support. I don't think the, the, the overall reaction from the, the populace is really home. Huh? on their side, outside of the circles that are already doing these things. I mean, it's, you know, the, the idea of, you know, torching police cars actually seems cool with probably a lot of people. It's probably not a good example, but, you know, I mean, there's a limited audience for smashing a Starbucks window. Because most people say, oh, man, the, the poor Starbucks workers and poor, poor property owners. But even the other ones just say, okay, you broke a window, so, but, you know. And I totally understand why they do it, by the way. I mean, they don't want... Profit. Yeah, and I profit try not to judge them businesses. too harshly. It's just rage. Well, that's, that's what I. But this is what I tell. And they're just lashing out, and I understand that anger. This is what I tell right libertarians. I'm like, yo, they say they did all the all the businesses. They just they repeat the whatever conservative pundits are just you know, word for word. And they're like, oh, they'll, they'll drive all the business out of the city. I'm like, dude, they don't want any profit earning businesses in the city. That they're against that. They're 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 communists or anarchists. They're communist or communist anarchists. They don't want that. That's what they want to do, but I mean, the overall audience for that is is limited, and there's a, there's a huge there's a the, the reaction the reaction from the right is always going to be thing, far bigger. The thing than, is, they're not going to drive the businesses. Out. You know who you know who um, benefits from smashing Starbucks windows? It's pro- not the anarchists. They're not, the gonna, they're not. They're not going to solve anything. Who benefits from that? Capitalists, you know, I don't know why. Well, the insurance companies are going to win out on that. Um, they're going to have to get a healthier premium from Starbucks for you know a- after that. Um, they're going to have to pay for a few windows, but they're just going to charge more for their uh, insurance after that because Starbucks has to put in a claim. The banks that are loaning uh, Starbucks business loans are going to benefit from that, and mm. the cops now have a pretext to crack down on the rest. Of and whatever budget they were going to have slashed is now going to be instead instead of reduced oh, by yeah. however much now doubled. They need, they need more MRAPs now because people are smashing windows and et cetera, oh, yeah. et cetera. Now, what happens if you made all that look like uh, a? What happens if you hit a bunch of infrastructure, state infrastructure, or corporate infrastructure, and you make it look like an accident? Hmm. You see what I'm saying? Now, yeah. I'm, I'm, some of what I'm doing, I'm ripping off from Ben Stone's book, and I, I highly recommend anybody read this. But a few examples I've cited are from uh, Ben Stone's book. It's a Sedition, Subversion, and Sabotage Field Manual Number One. And now, if you could make, uh, you could achieve a lot more goals, e- uh, even using violent or uh, forceful methods or sabotage. If it was done covertly versus rioting, it would yeah. take less of you to do it. You get a lot more done, and it likely wouldn't get caught. Okay. And you could make it look like an accident, and now the cops don't even have a pretext. Even better, you make the if you you know sabotage police vehicles and make it look like an accident and make them look stupid, they're going to have even less of a bet budget next year. 
and you solve your own goal. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but there's one thing that doesn't it's not spoken to there, and that's like uh, the fact that it, it is covert, so you don't get the kind of PR. So what about propaganda of the deep? Like what I've always tossed around in my head is is do stunts. Yeah, all this energy about smashing windows and stuff, do stunts that just ridicule the government, ridic- ridicule the state, ridicule politicians and corporations. Do do yes, big things. That is very important, too. Yeah, yeah. And I think you don't have to shoot that somebody. be a separate person from the person that's doing covert action. Yeah. So you can't be the person that's, uh, I don't know, um, cutting brake lines on MRAPs. You can't also be doing stunts in front of a courthouse. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So those... Those are both very important. I think that, yes, making politicians look stupid and making the whole system, Vermin Supreme style, making everyone look, everything look stupid, I think is a very valuable, very valuable at eroding the legitimacy of the state. These two things cannot uh, coexist in the same person or group. You see, you see why? Mm-hmm. Because you, if you're drawing attention to yourself, you can't also be cutting, uh, uh, um, you know, throwing sand in the machine at the factory. Yeah. That makes, uh, that makes, uh, weapons for the, the government. Yeah, I just you think, with, with also the, wearing a boot on your head. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I just think with global communication networks, the, the, um, the possibilities with, prop, yeah. with propaganda are just, are, are near limitless. No, it's very important. That's absolutely a very important factor. So much more than ever before. Yes. Because, you know, you can, you can make some politician look like a moron, and it'll go viral throughout the world. Yeah. So that's that's a beautiful thing. Yes, that's a very important tactic. I'm not I'm not discounting. Uh, I'm not saying everything has to be covert, but if you're doing something that's going to land you in jail or shot by the cops, you might want to think about you know being more covert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you're being silly and and doing something that, to make people look stupid and funny and, and making fun of. Tyrants in the the system. I mean, that could that could cause the state to lash out at you too. But um, it's less likely to do so, and uh, you don't necessarily ha- you don't have any reason to have to be covert. That you know, uh, that's uh, those are two different things, but they're both equally important. I would agree. All right. Well, um, kind of a seg- uh, reverse segue almost is like let's talk about the other side of. Um action against the state than uh, the covert action or um, kind of anarchist tac- tactics. Let's talk about the uh, party artists, the, the LP, basically, the, the in-the-system kind of uh, folks. Um, kind of, what, what do you think about the LP? I think a, a take that I've seen from some anarchists is that uh, they're not involved, they don't really care, but... Uh, the Libertarian Party is in a position where they are the public face of um, libertarian ideas, broadly, broadly, small l, broadly defined um, libertarian ideas. And as such that, you know, there's, it's like some people talking that we, and not everybody might agree with this, but have an interest in what they're doing because they are the public face of, of this sort of, these sort of ideas and ideologies. So do you do you kind of share that? Is, is there a, is there a concern that you don't want them to go too far off the rails in some of their um, you know this ideological lashing about in all sort of all sort of different directions? So I don't necessarily care too much. So let me okay. So I've been on all sides of this question. 
So I've been on the side that, well, okay, we got, we have to engage in political action and, and try to affect some kind of change in the immediate future through politicians and whatever and voting on referendums. Um, I, I'm like, I know this won't achieve an anarchist society, but at least maybe we can achieve something now, blah, 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 blah. So that, and I, man, I, I volunteered for Ron Paul campaign. So, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I've been on that side. And then I was on the, the exact other side. No, voting is immoral. Uh, the LLP is a joke. Uh, voting is violence. Uh, all you're doing is, uh, legitimizing you know, the state. Is, is preserve, legitimizing the state. I've been on that side too. Um, so my thoughts have changed on, on that. Um, now I just kind of think it's just not effective at really, um, Political action is not effective at uh, achieving any kind of meaningful change or uh, an anarchist society. However, it is effective um, as a platform for reaching a large audience, which sure has some value, but it doesn't have value enough for me to actually want to go join the LP and do something. I, I find my time is more well spent at effecting change. In other ways, yes, now, if, yes, yes. If that's, if that's your thing, have at it. But it's just not. I don't. I don't find it effective according to my preferences. Okay, so I, this is a simple. I think my time could be set, spent in other ways. Yeah, this is a simple argument. Is like what's 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 the most effective? Do you care? Do you do you think that uh, meaningful change could be done? Do you think that it's it's time uh, worth well spent? And there's a there's a great argument that I, I might even bring this up again that you know. All that effort spent um, with, within the party could be spent on could be spent on, on counter economic activities and just in yeah. these buildings institutions. It would be far far more effective because so much just all the man hours spent towards um, politics and toward to what goal? Sure, and that's that's a great argument, and I actually I kind of feel bad that I don't want to have it, but I, but I, the other side of that is is that let, let's just settle the question. We basically don't care. For the most part, maybe some with some sympathies towards some people's actions and, and um, use of the platform. But I mean, I was I was glad to see Joe Jorgensen or Vermin Supreme or Spike Cohen or um, um, what's the other fellow's name? Um, the, Jacob Hornberger. There's so many of them. Anybody there. over uh, Gary Johnson or uh, Ugh, Bill Bell. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm happy to see. You know, I didn't do a damn thing about it, but I was happy to see, you know, those choices over Gary Johnson. Well, almost on the other you side of I mean? the coin. Yeah, and, and I guess that can speak to that as well. I and mean, even, even this could speak to Johnson as well. It's like, we don't want, we also don't want them to be an embarrassment to the ideas of liberty and these, this general yeah, tendency. You want, them, because this you want is, them to know what they're talking about and be articulate they, and well-spoken. They are representing... A really a huge swath of people that may not increasingly do kind of see some commonalities, but a huge swath of people that even beyond the commonalities of, of anti-authoritarian ideas, a huge section, a huge overarching ideological space, they are um, an increasingly a, a, a very diverse ideological space that's being represented. They are representing, and to have let's just say certain uh, factions within th- this uh, movement really trying to like um, 
so you go on Twitter and you have all these different um, LP affiliates and national all the states and, and such. You have all and you have you have all the little caucuses and whatnot. And again, I just think that the, the amount of time spent on this could be spent. Well, ignoring that argument right now, I when, know you're gonna build a hundred best uh, underground businesses in the amount of time. I know, right? Yeah, but but when they go on and they make these these uh, you know, the, one thing we don't want them to do is to be an embarrassment to or to to speak for people who may not agree with certain views, and they, and they'll they'll go off and say and stuff like um, I don't know how you feel about this, but they'll they'll make these statements like. Um, you know, um, making people uh, get a vaccine is like uh, is like uh, whites only in colored water fountains in the um, in the Jim Crow South. And nobody was trying to make anybody at, at this point have a vaccine. That's because nobody would stand for it. There'd be blood in the streets. But ignoring the, that point that I try to make, like you don't have to say that. You don't have to do like this. Is people doing the, a vaccine thing with the with the uh, the juice sticker? From the Holocaust, the 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 patch that they had to wear, and and, and um, just I mean, people so that want to so push fun, either a, a left wing or a right fun. wing, you know, message through through libertarians or just 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 a, a, a wacky uh, interpretation. It's like uh, we kind of want them to stick to the message of effectively using their platform, and I don't know, not distract people into thinking that. Uh, People that talk about freedom all the time are a big joke. I, I, we don't want them to be a negative. I don't know if they can be a positive. What I'm trying to say is we don't want them to be a negative. I, I think. I, see, I don't necessarily know that that's a negative. So there's uh, okay. So what you want to do is reach the most amount of people and gain the most amount of attention. So Vermin Supreme is going to look ridiculous up there, but he's going to gain a lot of uh, attention for uh, for the for libertarian. Is it? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And making fun of the system and et cetera, et cetera. So he's not necessarily, he's making a mockery of the LP, but he's going to gain a lot of attention. And probably, I, I bet you there's tons of people that came over to libertarianism just because they saw some silly Vermin Supreme video. Actually, they did, and he went super viral and all, all for yes. what Vermin Supreme does. Yes. So I'm a little biased yes. here. And he looks absolutely ridiculous and not respectable at all. So I, I don't think we need necessarily like respectable and articulate is is valuable and a lot you might need reach a lot of people that way, but you can also reach a lot of people by just being a spectacle. No, I understand that, but you know when right. when the when the news stories are um, negative attention, when it's when, when it's bringing negative attention, yeah, whether it's bad. Like, whether it's somebody like okay, so. So Gary Johnson being an idiot and not knowing fuck all about what was going on in Syria, which was like an important thing at the time, and the it Aleppo. still is, still in freaking Syria. What is Aleppo? So, boy, yeah, what's Aleppo? What's Aleppo? Aleppo. 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 Like, he was Aleppo. just not the right candidate at all, you know. But he tried. Um, you I mean, want somebody that's you want somebody that's either going to grab your attention or you want somebody that really knows what the hell they're talking about. Poor Gary. You know what I mean? Right, and honestly, Garrett—he seems like a fine guy. I, I'd hang out. I'd hang out with him, but uh, right, we could hang out and talk, and you know, whatever, and have a beer. But I just—you had such a chance when you had two, you know, you had um, you know, mass murdering pantsuit and solid gold dumpster fire as your um, fucking two two um, choices in 2016, and you could have really had somebody there 
who was like, no, fuck both of these people, and had a really articulate message about, no, it doesn't have to be this way, man. You know, and, and you had fucking these two, you know what I mean? Bill Weld and Gary Johnson. Yeah, what a and joke. What a honestly, joke. I never voted for anybody in the LP. And, uh, okay, it's apparently my fault for not getting involved or whatever, but... Um, I, I just, you could, uh, there could have been a, a real chance there. I, I'm not even the first person, everybody said this at this point. There was a real chance in 2016 to where you could have had somebody that could really speak the message and, um, really, you know, I, you know, hammer it home like a fire breather. And, uh, it would, it, you just didn't. You had, you know, dopey Gary Johnson. Well, look, there's a bunch of um, different factions and different people with different favorites in the LP. There's people that, like, I don't even want to name the names because I don't even know these people. But, like, uh, I saw, um, when I tried to keep my ear to the streets, I saw Vermin Supreme going very viral and bringing all sorts of people in and really having some big events and saying more than just sitting on the stage with the the damn boot on his head. I mean, he did did some... He doesn't. He, he can he, actually. He, he can really articulate the message well. I've guy. seen a few of him when he when he kind of takes the boot off and isn't in character anymore. He's very very well spoken. Yeah, and he he really came out and um did some stuff. And of course, then you have you know the, then but he brings in he brings in mostly he brings in a lot of people that are kind of you know um, center center lefty. Definitely doesn't speak to the um the you know trad Catholic side. So, um, you know, you, you get that too. And then again, so I don't know, what do you think about this whole um, idea of libertarian unity? Because there's a certain crop of people, young folks, um, probably a little younger than us on, on down that are coming up and they, and they have, I think where they're at personally, I'm just looking at them, great folks. They have the right idea and they're, they're honestly coming in from outside of the traditional LP apparatus, which is great because I don't trust the LP at all. For anything, when you say young folks, like what do you mean? What are, what are their what are their beliefs? Uh, like why why do you like them? People that want libertarian unity, they don't want a fighting between the being the the pro LGBT crowd and the traditional Catholics crowd and the paleos and the uh, the libertarian socialists and the uh, pro you know pro uh, open borders. Um, people and you know, oh. but at the same time, it's like there's also skepticism, like you're you're. I don't want. I want people to tolerate each other and and hate the state. I want people just to so at least they're, ignore they're each other and hate the you state. You have to hate the state, right? So I'm for like radical libertarian unity, but I'm not for like oh, uh, you know, the this Koch brothers institute wrote a white paper about how if we just reduce the income tax by about thirteen percent and blah 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 blah. I'm not, I don't care. You know, if you are not, uh, I, I have no reason to associate myself with that sort of Koch brothers, milk toast, belt wave libertarian. No, no, no. Who just wants to, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna do some school vouchers, man, and like, so we're gonna reduce the income tax by about three and a half percent over 10 years. <laughs> Fuck off. I don't, I just, I don't care. Yeah, the way I see it. It's just not interesting to me. And you, you're too, we're too far apart. Like, I I want, I want an aircraft, uh, anti-aircraft weapon on my house. And you're talking about reduction of income tax for a couple of percent or whatever. When you want a flat tax or whatever the fuck it is. (laughs) Like, no, I want, 
I want meth vending machines and an aircraft anti-aircraft weapon on my house. You know, like we're not they're just not in the same thing. You yeah, know I think I mean? they're siloed so in their own me, over there. All but, of these radical caucuses should. It's weird to me that they fight each other. Like they're to me, their real enemy is sort of that Nick Sarwak, milk toast, Beltway kind of centrist libertarian. Uh, Nick Nick Sarwak's a yeah, he's a good classical liberal. I don't know about libertarian, but he's a he's good at what he well. That's what I'm talking about. Sort of like you know, Cato's very good on foreign policy, but a lot of their uh, writings are very you know middle of the road kind of. you know, they fit very well, in very well in Washington kind of deal. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, if we just reduce our troops overseas by 10% each year over the next 15 years, white paper. No, everywhere should be, we should, the U.S. should be out of everywhere tomorrow. You okay. Know? Like, it's not. I agree. I you agree. You know what I'm saying? But that's you not, the difference there? That's not where the debate is right now. Those people are just that's kind of That's what I'm saying. That's where the debate should be. That's what I'm saying. The debate is amongst, like, okay, the, the Mises versus whoever the it's radical caucus versus the socialists versus LGBT. And that's not where the fight is to me. But that that's, is where the fight is to them. That's what I'm trying to say, I know, man. That's I know, where. That's, that's what the fight be. is. It's the it's it's the it's the um it's the gays and and. Pro gray, pro trans, pro hormone treatments versus the traditional Catholics and the fighting the cathedral and banning all that shit. Because, but here's here's my beef with it. This is the thing right, that I wanted to get off my chest. The enemy is the the centrists. I understand, but here's here's my here's my beef is that all they're doing is taking the regular the CNN news headlines of the day and just being more ridiculous about them. They're just. It, they're failing to create, and I don't hate to use this term because of its other associations, but they're, they're, they're failing to create a viable third position. They're not even a third party. They're just restating the same thing that's on Fox News and CNN and going back and forth on it. And they're not, you know, I'm, I'm not here for that. You know what I mean? Now, that's why I'm not involved. because I'm, I'm definitely not here for that. Right. And that's, and that's how the sort of Hillary Clintons of the Libertarian Party are winning. Like, the, uh, or any or of the Washington consensus, to me the the fight is not between Mises and outright libertarians or or the, even the socialist caucus. To me, they have more in common with each other than they do with sort of. Uh, I, I hate to bash on Cato because they're actually pretty okay, but <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying that that sort of like middle of the road sort of uh, centrist libertarian. You know, who wants to, you know, very, you know, reasonably and respectably reduce things by a very small amount in a very long period of time. Yeah, you know why don't you go tell them that? Because <laughs> you know, that's, right. well, that's the thing. It's like, I don't care to get into the shit flinging either. So it's, yeah. I, I don't know. But it, it just would seem to me, that seems like the obvious, it seems like the obvious to me, and maybe I'm an idiot, I don't know, but. That they have more in common with each other. They are both very, very radical libertarians. Like all the people we've, ju- I've just mentioned, very radical libertarians. Mm-hmm. They have more in common with each other than they do with the sort of Nick Sarwaks of the LP. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. or the Bill Wells. The Bill Wells. They have yeah. way more in common. Their, their enemy is the Bill Wells, the cathedral, the centrist. That's their fucking common enemy. That's who's going to send them off the war. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah, but here's the deal. So when when some state bans, um, uh, you know, trans surgery for people under 18 and people under 21 or something, they've got to have they've got to center the debate about about that Fox News headline and be radically pro or ra- radically anti, and then have their libertarian justifications or their culture war justifications. And you know, like I said, they fail to create this third third position that doesn't. Doesn't it put itself in the middle of that culture war debate and instead, you know, Listen. exacerbates it? And, that, and, and that's where the conversation is. You, every single day, Dave Smith or somebody has some, or one of his anti Dave Smith people that are none of them which live up to his level of fame, but individually, but like every day, somebody's, there's a huge, new, huge debate centered on the culture wars. And it's, the culture wars, I think, is. I mean, I'm not here for that. I'm not here for what's on Fox News, CNN, or any of the corporate press. And and I'm no, not here. Honestly, I think Dave Smith has really dropped the ball because if he could just stick with the war, the the bankers, the Federal Reserve, the the war machine again, the money, uh, the drug war, and just team up with these radicals in the LP uh, and kick out. He keeps calling them left. I listen to the show. I'm not gonna lie. Okay. Okay. Good. Especially good. There's a, guest, there, there's a guest on that I like. No. Good. We can talk about this because yeah. Right. And sometimes he's a douchebag, and I I literally roll my eyes. But um, uh, I don't agree with him a lot. But anyway, uh, thing is, is like he keeps calling like Nick Sarwak of the world a, a, a left libertarian or whatever. And uh, honestly, a lot of things I hear out of Dave's mouth uh, is something you would hear out of left, like legit left libertarian's mouth. And these people hate these sort of Koch brothers, corporate libertarians. Mm-hmm. They, they all do. That's who Dave's calling them left libertarians. The left libertarians, the socialists, whatever, they hate those fucking Koch brothers libertarians. Yeah, but here's... So the, the, I've got, the, I've got the, really... If they just stuck with their the common issues that they all agreed on, they could really turn the uh, LP into a radical meet, uh, meeting place. Yeah, so people like, like 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 Magnus that that, that are like super um, pro um, pro kind of what they call like bottom unity, really just in the middle and just saying let's just get together and somebody from outside the traditional libertarian establishment. A lot of these people um, in, in in this kind of vague space. I like these people individually, but when it comes to saying. They're actually saying the exact same message you are, which is your radicals put put aside these differences and talk about the radical things that you actually want in common. That's the argument you're making. Their exact argument of, of some of the people that I really identify with the most. But the deal is, is like you're not really going to get the people that are totally vocally pro sex work to agree with the people that think that it's a sin and it should be stamped out from society. And that's what that's what the debate is right now. I don't know how that's resolved by just saying let's all come together, guys. I mean, I might. No, have some and I'm ideas. not saying I'm not saying let's all come together, guys, either. Really, and even I am generally pro bottom unity. I guess I'd be just because I don't have well, that's where we come from. I don't have another word for it. But like, that's where we come like from. I always say, like bottom unity, it's like I'm aligning myself with a bunch of people I've never met that might have my politics, but even people that have my politics could be assholes. It doesn't necessarily mean I want to associate with them either. Mm-hmm. So like, as generally speaking, I'm bottom unity, but even then I'm like, well, as long as you're not an asshole, 
I mean, I have sharply, obviously, I have sharply contrasting views because I don't, I don't see it. Seem, it seems to be kind of naive when you look at people who fundamentally have so far opposing views, and they're they're coherent, both sides coherent. Like a radically pro sex work position can be coherent, and so can a radically pro family values position especially me i mean i'm you know as, as some so here's people the may thing, know though. yeah i i totally get both of those if you're if you're now i'm generally radically pro sex work but also i've never paid for a prostitute in my life have you ever been a sex worker i've never been a sex worker okay. no. um I've hung out with some sex workers, but I've never, I've never paid for it. But I'm radically sure pro sex work. But also, if like it comes down to once you're uh, in, in an anarchist society or a libertarian society, you're just coming down to personal preferences in your own life. So like all of these people, like you might be radically pro sex work or radically anti sex work or whatever. But you're both like uh, you both want a free society where you can make these choices for yourselves, and it doesn't fucking matter what the other person thinks. You know what I'm saying? Like so, th- these things can be reconciled. I I deal with people on a regular basis that I probably don't agree with on a lot of things. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I do too. It, yeah. It's not it's not it's not a it's not a prerequisite that everybody that I associate with on certain things or buy things from or whatever believes the same way I do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it's like, I think it's the internet, man. It's social media. It gets these people like into these shit flinging wars <laughs> where if they actually just sat down and talked to each other, uh, in a long porn conversation, I don't think, uh, uh, that there would be as much of a difference in agreement, okay. a, a difference of opinion. You basically answered the question that I was going to say, well, I wonder if it's really just, um, kind of my perception from purely, I, I don't listen to this podcast, but just purely looking at like Twitter and social media and podcasts versus actually, um, I don't know. I don't know how it is outside of that, of those spaces. You know, maybe, maybe it's not as bad. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it wouldn't be as bad. If, I mean, if, like, like, if like I said before we started, Twitter cesspool. And I think a lot of social media is accessible. And I spend it, like, all my time there. Worst in everyone, I think. Yeah, it really does. I mean, uh, I have I have a good time on there, but um, that's what everybody tells me. Apparently, I mean, I have, I have a good time on there. I've, I've learned a tremendous amount, but maybe I'm a little selective with. Uh, also, who, who I it seems with. to me that the people, the most uh, negative interactions are the I think the ones that are the end up being the most loud and therefore the most memorable. So like, you're you're not gonna remember or hear about the time that Dave Smith said, "No, I'm fucking let's get together with the left." I'm pretty, I'm you know, I'm pretty much a bleeding heart libertarian. Let's get together with the lefties on on war and drugs and whatever else, drug war and whatever else. Uh, we can worry about the the fucking universal basic income later. You're never gonna hear uh, uh, guys like Dave say that because it's the negative conflict shit that the social media amps up. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess. So, but I mean, so you're going to see the worst of everybody because that's what the, uh, that's what gets the most likes and what brings everything to the top of the heap. Then it goes back and yeah. forth, back and forth until you get yes. the Mises caucus making their ultimate, ultimate, and I don't mean to just pick on the Mises side, believe me, the, the, their, 
uh, plenty of obnoxious people on the other side. But making this I argument, mean, there's some good guys in the, there's some good people in the Mason Scott. Yeah, I, I know there are. I know there are absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean to pick on them, but yeah. making this ultimatum like, would you or would you not vote for a racist president to end all the wars? And I'm like, dude, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. There's not going to be a racist libertarian that's elected to that's, that's going to win the election, and. It's a it's a bullshit hypothetical. Why well, even bring it up? But that's what it said. Like, you wouldn't be a president that's going to end all the wars. Yeah. That's Would you vote for a racist president like, to end the right. wars? I'm like, dude, it's not going to happen either way. Yeah. I mean, exactly. So, like, why are you having this argument? Why is this? Why is this the argument of the day on on libertarian social media? Because Rothbard endorsed David Duke, and the reason Rothbard endorsed David Duke was because. David Duke was anti-war. Mm-hmm. We need and to talk about said, this libertarian. Uh, I can put aside all the racist nonsense to pick, get a candidate that's anti-war. Now think about think about that. I think that's a stupid idea, but um, I think his reasoning was important. It wasn't because Rothbard loved the Klan. It was because Rothbard hated fucking war. So uh, I understand. Like that mentality, I'll vote for fucking anybody if they say they're going to end the world wars. Number one, nobody's going to end the wars, so it's a, it's an entirely a moot point. It's like you're having you're having one of those like mental masturbation conversations where it's completely fucking irrelevant. It's never going to happen, so arguing about it is fucking a pointless. You know, it's just shit flinging on the internet. It doesn't matter at all because it's. You're never going to get a person in there that's going to end the wars. They'll fucking shoot the person. Yeah, you know well, what I'm saying? Here, here's the other like, Even if you've got Ron Paul in there, listen, I, don't, I think people still have too much faith in yes. the system itself. That's what I was about to say. No. They're, it's they're, like, even if you got Ron Paul, like, they think that even if you got Ron Paul in there, you would uh, have some sort of, I did too, you would have some sort of drastic and fundamental change. Dude, they will fucking show you pictures of your children at the fucking playground and say, listen, you don't want anything to happen to them, do they? Do you? You're going to fucking sign on this dotted line. You yeah. understand? Like, that's how the fucking game is played. These people do not play by their own rules. They are a fucking violent mafia organization. They will shoot your grandkids children in the face to make sure that war machine keeps going. And even Ron Paul, the great fucking hero of the libertarians, would have fucking done the same thing. When you've got a fucking, when you've got your secret service showing you pictures of your grandkids with a fucking gun in the back of their head, they're going to do what, Ron Paul's going to um, send his troops into fucking Afghanistan to keep Raytheon happy. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Ron Paul because that's the thing. Like, we are in a post-Ron Paul era. We all, so there are people coming up now that are, that are way too young for Ron Paul, but generalizing generalizing we all experienced Ron Paul we were all on the same page during Ron Paul Ron Paul brought people so many people to libertarianism a lot of which are still libertarians are right libertarians are libertarian socialists a lot of them are fascists and outright some of them were communists but so many people either were or are libertarians together because he was anti-banker anti-war anti-drug war pro-freedom so Basically, honestly, eight years. I, I don't mean to bash Ron Paul too much. I, I love the man to death. I fucking, I, I really do. 
I just don't think he could have achieved what libertarians think he could have achieved. Yeah, but basically, we possible. had we had eight years where we were on the same page behind Ron Paul, and a lot of us weren't political before. All I'm, I'm, I'm talking about is people that weren't political, that were young and impressionable and forming their ideas. And a lot of us formed our had a lot of ideas formed during the Ron Paul era. And after Ron Paul, I mean, that's when I got, that's when I found out more about libertarianism, a gap between Ron, the 2012 election and like basically around 2015, 2016, um, started listening to some, you know, radio shows and podcasts and whatnot. But, um, eventually it became clear to me that like we're in a post Ron Paul era and like all the good stuff, like people that was positively affected by Ron Paul and they moved in various directions. But like in a sense, he was a unifying force that, that's then gone. And it's like, it's, there had, people were kind of, I think, missed this message that was kind of, uh, unitary. And now people are going also, and I'm, I like, I like, I embrace diversity. I want more diversity of ideas. But like, you, you know, I think there's something to be said that people had for eight years, kind of a, a unity of message in the anti war and anti bankers and stuff. And now we don't have that. And I think, you don't I, need that, I think but... that was valuable at the time, and it was what was needed. But I don't know that. Okay, so I don't know that that's necessarily ne- uh, it's not necessary. A good no, I thing. I don't think it's necessary. Like uh, we all be unified in one, under one person or one i one specific set of ideas. No, we've had that argument like before. After Ron Paul, all these people broke off and went you know, a number of different directions and did a number of different things and built apps and, you know, did various things with the crypto world and um, went out and formed, uh, you know, intentional communities or, or, uh, you know, built permaculture farms or, you know, they all kind of went their own separate ways and didn't didn't divert all of their energy into uh, one man. So I, I think you have, I don't want to be too down on the Ron Paul campaign, but I think you uh, had some uh, opportunity costs there mm. to where, yes, you brought all these people together, but what could they have been doing other than uh, filling out petitions for Ron Paul? No, dude. Or no. donating thousands and millions, millions of Millions and millions of dollars into Ron Paul campaign. No, but he he brought a lot of with that money. He brought a lot of young and apathetic and and people that hadn't formed his opinions. He he did inspire a whole generation of people that are now coming to a close. Now we're in a a completely post Ron Paul era, but he he got a whole bunch of minds rolling, rolling in different directions, but rolling inspired generation like young teenagers into monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, when I hear yes. interviews now, even with like, with like hardcore, like hardcore intellectual, uh, individualist anarchists, nearly every single one of, of a certain age, which is about my age, is like, oh, it like originally brought into Ron Paul. Everybody was an ANCAP, and before they were an ANCAP, they were brought in by Ron Paul, and they became uh, a libertarian socialist or an individualist anarchist or whatever, whatever, whatever. And, you know, that's incredibly valuable. Now, I think, though, there's some hope, and like what you were saying, the detriments, like, now we're getting a whole crowd of people coming up that didn't know anything about Ron Paul, and like, what, what's that going to take us? That's going to be a whole... I like some... I like a lot of young folks. I like a lot of what I'm seeing from a lot of young folks, like... uh 
I don't know. I think um, I think things are completely up, honestly, skipping for, over the political memes. I, I hope so. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of that, and and they're, they're getting into more um, radicalism. Uh, yeah, self liberation, radical uh, radical tactics and methods, and um, self reliance and that sort of thing, and uh, you know, doing away from they're uh, increasingly uh, skeptical of. Both, you know, bullets and ballots. They're uh, both revolution and, uh, 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 <clears throat> sorry, uh, parliamentarianism. Uh, I think that might be because they are uh, after Ron Paul, because we don't have this one politician that we can all rally behind and look to for answers. And, you know, we all have to do this thing the one certain way. Uh, it might be that we, we have more diversity of thought and also, you know, tactics and methods and uh, more so than we did during Ron Paul, you know, because during Ron Paul, it was like, well, let's just, we got to get him on the ballot, get, you know, make sure he gets in those debates and whatever. And that was valuable. It was, it was, um, it's like Scott Horton says, he says, look, he, he, he was like seven years after 9-11 and he said it was America's fault. And he told right-wingers that they didn't have to support George Bush's wars anymore. And that was unbelievably important. That made a lot of, like, sort of anti-war right-wingers mm-hmm. at that time. When he took huge shits on Giuliani, the guy that was mayor of New York mayor. during 9-11. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, and he just, he took huge shits on the guy and right-wingers loved it. And that's that's a crazy. If that didn't happen, I don't know where we'd be now. You know, I I don't know, but no, like that was a valuable thing at the time. It but, was foundational. It was foundational. It really was important was. because um, I don't know what else there was. What what else was going on at that time? Like, I don't know if there was an alternative that would have gotten a generation that you know right now probably the people that are in their thirties. Like I don't, I don't know if there was another force that would have like sustained that, and I don't know if they, if then the next generation that that I think is great of, of radicals because um, there's not a whole lot of radical forces in our um, in our society. You know, we're not. I mean, there's an ebb and flow, obviously, but like uh, I don't know what else there was at the time. But again, again, it was probably overshadowed by Ron Paul. So. Yeah, there really wasn't much. Else, from what uh, I understand, the not, LP at least was, not to that uh, to that level, I guess. From sure. what I understand, the LP was particularly awful around that time. So no, you had Harry Brown okay. uh, mm-hmm. earlier um, than Ron Paul, and he was pretty solid. Well, didn't they uh, nominate Bob Barr? The CIA yeah, then guy? it was Bob. Bob then it was Bob Barr, who was a former CIA. C- yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah. I know that much. So. Yeah, no, so you didn't really have much. Harry Brown didn't get the sort of the recognition that Ron Paul did, but um, he was pretty similar, I would say. Even when you were dissing... He, um, he wrote, a, he wrote a, uh, Harry Brown wrote a, uh, an article on September 12th, 2001, Ugh. that said, when will we learn? Wow, wow. I know Justin Raimondo did something like that, too, but yeah. Yes. Well, I understand. Yep. From antiwar.com, it's, I don't even know who, how you know who he is. I just know him through other you know, stuff. Yeah, he was uh, an, an ace 
started, uh, he was at anti-war during, from the beginning. And he was, so, you know, an anti-war sort of conservative. Uh, he was a very big Trump fan towards the end, but he, he passed away now. Mm. Uh, but he had some good, solid, you know, articles from sort of a, uh, right wing or classical conservative sort of position. Hey, dude, we need uh, to do an episode. Yeah, we need to do an episode on, on, on conservatism, the paleo strategy, the history of, of the paleo alliance. And I think we really, there's so much that you know about that. You're, you're honestly, you're, you're a huge resource of that. And I think you emphasize the importance of like the, right-wing libertarianism and the right-wing anti-war movement. And I mean, I think you're right about that. So, I mean... Yeah, no, I think... So, and I honestly, I'm stealing part of this from Scott Horton, but... So, uh, left-wing anti-war... Um, Let's do this, yeah. Is less, ...is less effective for two reasons. Now, when I say left-wing, I... Well, no, I actually... I mean legit communist, and I also mean... Uh, Liberals, so people expect them to be anti-war, and when people um, hear a Democrat or a communist being anti-war, as you know, most people in the society or uh, even conservatives who are the ones sending their kids to die in these wars, mm. they don't take them seriously. They don't take communists seriously. They think of Jane Fonda spitting on soldiers and. And what posing in their hair and hippie nonsense, Mm. and they don't. And then uh, Democrats, they just see as like weak. They think LBJ, who got you know a bunch of people killed in Vietnam and then lost the war anyway, so they Mm. don't take those people seriously. But they will. And these, like I said, these are the people sending their children to die in these wars. Conservatives, overwhelmingly, it's conservatives that send their children into the military. Um, so if you want to stop the war machine, you need a, uh, a sort of a right winger. And I mean that in a very broad sense, but like a more conservative fellow person, um, who is, uh, you know, conservative and, and, um, you know, speaks the conservative right wing language, but is also like, uh, just passionately anti-war. So I, I think that's a very important voice in our society because, listen, uh, Jane Fonda is never going to convince the, you know, the uh, the Main military Street. family from Texas. Yeah, the Main, thing, Main like, Street America. Or the right. Communist Party is yeah. never going to convince, like, uh, uh, somebody from Alabama Suburbs. who's sending their kids to Iraq. And it's never going to happen. But who will convince them is, like, you know, a Ron Paul or a Justin Romando. Or uh, some of the some of the folks at Cato, or even in the American Conservative, that's who's going to, like, uh, uh, you know, I'm a Christian conservative, and that's why I'm anti-war. You know what I'm saying? Like that is uh, going to go a lot farther. No, than, I'm with you. That's very powerful. No, I'm, I'm totally right. with you on that. You're right on that. So, is, is is that kind of the argument too, where the because uh, a huge interest of mine, and we've talked about this, and I've also talked about this much on Twitter, which you're not you're not on Twitter, so, but um. Where the kind of the genesis of, uh, I'm really interested in the genesis of the paleo strategy, the paleo alliance for libertarianism. And, and one reason I am is because up until that point, um, the connections with the right wing were distinct. There was definitely sort of right 
ish positions. I mean, Ron Paul goes back further with the Libertarian Party, and there were definitely right libertarians even in the '60s and such. I mean, I've yeah, I mean, you know, not everybody was a was either a libertarian. I mean, they weren't like a, I don't think a bunch of libertarian socialists, but not everybody was a Carl Hess or a, a Konkin type of that type of left libertarian. Which I, be, no, I think they were. No, so, no, they were they were definitely right libertarians way back when. Yeah, I mean, we would call them right libertarians now, but I don't think that's how they thought of themselves. No, I'm talking about like they, I've seen Kyle Hess actually writing about other people that are kind of lost in history that were kind of right wing libertarians. They were they oh, were yeah. pro, they I were mean, propertarian. I guess the people that went around and sort of the Randian crowd. Yeah. Yeah, even, there were even other ones too. They were just just very property. There there were some property oriented libertarians, um, more elite, oh, yeah, elitist that's types. That's how you're defining. Elitist, right. yes, elitist yes. types. There were there were people that were against the hippies and against the the protests. I I I and and, and honestly, I know this when Carl House was talking and criticizing them. And like, what's funny about this? I think actually Nick Sarwak uh, shared the article. But um, what, what's funny about that is that um, those people are lost to history. I I I can't even name them. But there was some right wing and then and then Rothbard originally came from the right but he wasn't he didn't consider himself on the right from the yeah he didn't really think of him so here's here's how it went from his young so, days all the way until this is what we're talking about now go ahead go ahead I just want to say like he did not consider himself I mean, on the this, right seriously this could be like 10 podcasts I know we're going to do it we're going to do it but just, let's, let's just start <laughs> let's, let's just, let's just uh, tease him so early on I mean yeah he wrote Confessions of a Right Wing Liberal and what he meant by that was so, uh, and how far back do you want to go? So, the progressives originally started in the Republican Party. They took over the Democrat Party about a couple decades later. And then um, you had the, the pinnacle of that being the New Deal. So, the people that had been in the Democratic Party and also sort of independence and, you know, uh, libertarian-ish types like uh, Albert Nock and uh, uh, what's his name? Um, starts with an M. Uh, anyway, no, no, so you had a bunch of uh, sort of leftover bourbon Democrats, what they called them. They're sort of small government, individual freedom types, yeah. and etc. Uh, and some people that were uh, sort of uh, not Democrats, but sort of independents, and you had people like Albert Nock, who was a libertarian Georgist, and you had all these people who mm. were like a loose coalition of folks who the only reason they had uh, any affiliation at all were they were anti-progressives. This included people like Leninists, uh, uh, because a lot of the socialists and communists of the time saw right through the progressives as just a fascist plot. Mm. Um, Etc. So all of these people is uh, Rothbard referred to as the old right, but that doesn't really make sense. Because, I mean, I guess, but um, he referred thought of them as the old right, and that's what he thought of himself as is sort of in their uh, in their footsteps, uh, you know, standing on their shoulders. Okay, I love this. I love so, I love hearing the, the the origin story stuff. I just I, I can't understand it until I. So this is great. This is great. Okay. Oh, Mencken. I'm learning stuff as I'm you sorry. speak. I'm sorry. I was yeah. thinking of Mencken. Mencken. He was. He was in that same. Crowd. H. L. Mencken. Okay. Yeah. 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 So anti-New Deal, anti-progressives. Um, they they all saw it as sort of a, a fascist takeover. 
Yeah, and it, and it was, so, and I'm glad you're starting at the New Deal. That's a good, that's a good starting point. No, no further. But um, because I think we can agree, FDR is bad. Massive expansion of government. Massive. I mean, massive expansion of governments worldwide. I, that's always struck me since high school. But massive expansion yes. of the scope and scale of government, um, and uh, general rise of demagogues and totalitarian figures, including four-term president FDR and. You know, and all the, the power utilization of the economy. Yes, yes. And, you know, there's so much left libertarian work on that. If Marcus, not capitalism, so much about um, what what the New, De- uh, the New Deal did. I mean, it really, really feels. And the idea that conservatives hold it up as being um, anti market, and they're like, they're right, but it was anti market in an anti liberal way. It was a cartelizing, you know, it was the government takeover of the economy in, in favor of the of the elites. But okay, go, go, go yes. on. And it was intentionally, and intentionally so. Very much. Yeah. Um, so, that was, I got an echo coming in. But... Let me uh, move these speakers. I, actually, I'm not. Okay, go ahead. Alright, so that was, uh, you know, the 40s, World War II ended, you had the start of the Cold War, and all of the people that you would consider the right were now uh, rabidly anti-communist and pro-Cold War. Thank um, you, there. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. So all all the people that you would consider the right were uh, rabidly pro-military uh, buildup. Anti-communist, uh, pro Cold War. So um, Rothbard and a lot of other uh, sort of you know, liberals, libertarians at the time were uh, very discouraged in what they saw on the right. So they looked to the left at the time. This was you know the fifties and the sixties, and they started reaching out to leftists at the time. Uh, you know Rothbard was hanging out with Maoists and whatnot. Uh, mostly because of their opposition to war and the Cold War. Um, but any kind of co- coalition he could find then um, that had, you know, was at least anti-war and pro-gun or whatever the case, had something that he agreed with, um, he would align with. And that was mostly on the left then. Okay, so we've talked about this before in uh, a bunch. But one thing that I've kind of learned recently from, uh, from the Unregistered podcast, Dad was talking about um, the fact that or some of the, one of the guests was talking about the where a lot of the sm, uh, small government tendency um, people on the right kind of hitched their wagon to the anti-communist you know we must we, we must um, the kind of the paleo old school right wing kind of hitched their wagon to the to the big government we must fight uh, communism by any means crowd. Yes. And, and, and they said, well, after we defeat the totalitarian Soviet Union, the people that were convinced by this argument, then we can go and talk about, you know, uh, liberalism in a classic, classical sense and, you know, reducing the size and scope of government and whatnot and everything. So I think that's the back, that's the necessary background. Yeah, where the so, right, so the point right William went. F. Buckley, uh, who is, uh, you know, the pro-Cold War conservative at the time, but before the Cold War, he would even call himself a small government person. But to quote him, he says, we must accept uh, 
exploded bureaucracy on our shores because the communist threat is so great. We must accept um, essentially this large bureaucracy in America, um, even with Truman at the helm. So, you know, Truman, he didn't like Truman. So the idea was we have to accept this now to fight the Soviets. Um, but after the Soviet threat is eliminated, the idea was that they would uh, eliminate this, you know, large wartime bureaucracy and government. So that, that was the idea of the right at the time. And that was mostly, even they might say they were pro-small government or civil liberties or whatever, but um, it's wartime. So we have to fight the commies. So we have to accept all this kind of nonsense from the government. And um, there's a lot of people even on the right then who was like, no, listen, you're turning yourselves into the Soviet Union to fight the Soviet Union. So um, Exactly. Yeah, so the, I mean, there was dissidents even on the even among conservatives then. Like, look, I hate the fucking communists too, but you don't want to become the Soviets to be, you know, to fight the Soviets. And that was kind of uh, that was a uh, actually, believe it or not, that was a, a lot of the John Birch Society back then was like, look, we hate communists too, but we have to stay a small government republic because that's what America is, and. We can't allow us to be, you know, godless commies and at home just to, in the name of fighting them abroad and blah, 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 blah. Okay, so, so Rothbard was, but that was the new that left. Was a minority within the right-wing position, by, for sure. So uh, Rothbard spent his time on the left and, uh, you know, with the SDS, Students for Democratic Society, who were kind of like uh, either radical socialist or... Uh, so there's some free market socialists. Carl Hess did as well. Um, and um, there was actually a lot of collaboration between like Young Americans for Freedom, and, which was kind of a more property-oriented libertarian uh, organization, and the SDS, which was a much more like sort of democratic socialist or market socialist uh, organization. Um, and there's a lot of collab- collaboration then, and um, they all kind of got behind the anti-war effort. They kind of culminated in the anti-Vietnam thing. Um, fast forward, uh, you know, Rothbard gets very discouraged, and you know, get, feels like he gets betrayed by some of these people. Uh, he kind of shies away from it a bit, but he uh, he does have some good writings during this time. Um, so uh, nothing really uh, cumulates. I mean, I mean, I guess he pulled a lot of people uh, over, kind of from the left, and, uh, and Carl Hess got way more radical during this time, which was also great. But uh, and uh, Konkin, I think uh, this is when Konkin came up with agorism. Yep, yep. Uh, so this would be the early '70s. So this would be right in the, the pinnacle, like just after you know, yeah, we protested our you know Vietnam and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then the LP started, and you had Konkin and uh, what have you. So I think Rothbard went through something similar to what I did after the George Bush administration. So I spent the entire George uh, two terms of uh, George Bush Jr. Well, actually, I spent uh, George Bush Senior's term too, protesting his wars. And a lot of these people were, you know liberals and leftists 
and uh, I, I considered them sort of comrades in arms uh, to, to fight the war machine. Until the day that Obama was inaugurated, and all of a sudden they just uh, they disappeared, and they spent the next eight years apologizing for his war crimes. And I think Rothbard had a similar uh, situation back after the Vietnam ended, where you know now um, you know you start getting a few sort of. Uh, liberal lefty presidents or whatever, and all of a sudden these people are apologizing, even though we're doing secret covert actions and funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think he went through a similar similar thing and got burned from you know the sort of even even the radical leftists at the time. So then, so I think we discussed. Hold on, I just want to ask you. Um, I think we discussed the, the, overall. Did the ref? I mean, we kind of know this, but did the, the, the new left kind of kind of fade and de-radicalize and kind of turn into kind of big yes. government liberal progressive liberals? I mean, is that kind of what it was to the kind of the radical left faded into more? No, they, just, um, they got old. Establishment, yeah, yeah. They got. I mean, that's what it was. They got old, and there's a there's a great tune um, by. Uh, I don't know how to say his last name, Peter Oaks, love me, I'm a liberal. And it was basically like, um, you know, once I was young and radical, but now I'm older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. It's like you just, they just got old in the 70s. You know, the young 18, 20-year-olds and that were super radical in the 60s and 70s are now, you know, getting into their 40s and the 80s or whatever, and they just became, you know, just any other... You know, we we want to support our public schools liberal. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They might be, you know, randomly anti-war, or, you know, or as a general rule, but they weren't just passionate about it. They had things to do, you know. Um, and they quit smoking pot or, whatever, you know, whatever it is. So there just was no, there was nobody for Rothbard and the six people that were called themselves libertarians that hung out in his living room. There's no one really for him to ally with in like uh, the 70s and 80s. Like he, you know, I don't know why some libertarians have a boner for Reagan, but Rothbard was not a giant fan of Reagan. And actually Ron Paul resigned in disgust in the front from the Reagan cabinet because Reagan was just, he was, he might have had a few good things to say, but he was just like a every other politician. Yeah, Reagan did damage to, yeah. to, to the ideas of liberty, I think, too. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. Yes. But I, Reagan contributed to the kind of conflation. Um, I guess that's kind of what we're talking about. But Reagan contributed some by saying, you know, the government's not here to help and they can't do anything right and everything. He's just general ideas, even though he was a massively huge government guy. And, of course, in the theory, we've got to defeat communism and whatnot. But, no, look, he, he definitely contributed greatly, even now, to the conflation between uh, the libertarian ideas, the um, ideas centering on, on, on quote-unquote freedom. So when you hear the word freedom, what do you think? Reagan really said a lot of that tune, and it's really, it, it has a lasting effect, even though he's been long dead. Right. Well, he expanded government and government spending and was running secret wars into everywhere and selling cocaine to the... Uh, LA 
Well, well, that's the thing. Uh, that's the yeah. thing. So when people say people use the word rhetorically freedom, they, they, they use that that kind of rhetoric. I mean, it's more so. It's it's been for my entire life because I I was born. I think I was yeah, I was born during Reagan. Yeah, I was born during Reagan actually. Like so, for all all that I can remember, that rhetoric has been used by that section of the right. And um, so that's the kind of impression yeah, you get. And, and the idea that libertarians, for example, a radically anti-war movement, I mean, that's lost on the majority of the population. Maybe not, that's lost on the majority of the population by a long, by a long shot. Maybe most people are extremely poorly informed, but I mean, you know, people have general ideas. So I think that's one place we really got to place a lot of blame for the conflation. And I have a really big issue with the conflation between libertarianism and right-wing ideas for various reasons, because it's, it's ahistorical and I hate things that are ahistorical, basically. That, you know, you know what I mean? I hate conflation. I hate, I hate people getting the absolute wrong idea about oh, yeah. something. I don't want to get into the left or right thing, but it's definitely anti-Reagan. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it has nothing to do with like Reagan's ideals or any, but they've any maintained, it's not conservative, Reagan conservative. They it's have, not what libertarian is. and, but they've had a, a, almost a monopoly on the freedom the rhetoric, rhetoric of freedom ever since, and we, that's one thing we need to kind of overcome. Because when you hear freedom, you think, oh, uh, Republican, GOP, you know. And uh, I mean, I can't imagine. I couldn't imagine personally being on the left and not being pro freedom. I think I don't know how. I mean, I guess you could be a, a tanky, but that's uh, I cannot imagine being a tanky for one thing. But I mean, I, I, I don't know. But when you hear that terminology. I mean, it makes people makes liberals like progressives shudder, and rightfully so because they're not they're generally not for freedom. But I don't know. I just think that um, you know. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I don't like the conflation. Sort of the Reagan I, Republicans will use the rhetoric, and it's it is very damaging, and it, it's, it means nothing coming from them. It's not the same thing. So any, anyway, yeah, so okay, so eighties. Uh, that's basically what you had, and you had a lot of dissidents that were libertarians. Who said Reagan? You're a son of a bitch, and you're, you know, you're. Um, what you do is not what you say, and etc. And Ron Paul was one of those. But then the Cold War ends, and um, so a lot of the conservatives that who had, who had been uh, who had bought into the sort of large government uh, military buildup to fight the Soviets were like, okay, Soviet Union fell. We can kind of we can dismantle the CIA. They really believe that this is going to happen. Oh yeah, this was a huge this, people. Yeah, people this cannot call like the paleo conservative now. No, no but I mean, they really believe society wide, society wide. This was a huge turning point, and like this is like one of the biggest turning points in the twentieth century. I was still too young to remember it, but like this was one of the biggest turning. Every everything was supposed to change with the fall of the Soviet Union because the entire paradigm between nineteen forty five and nineteen forty six was a was changing drastically and the whole world was going to flip on its head and then what happened ended up being obviously what we know what happened but um yeah big deal for on on the, for the conservatives for sure right because they thought we were going to go back to quote a normal country in a normal time which means that we were going to go back to how we were before we built up this huge government and military to fight the soviets like, there's people like Pat Buchanan, who was in Reagan's cabinet, who literally thought we were going to dismantle the CIA and, and the Pentagon. Wow, wow. They thought it was going to be dismantled. So, yeah, Pat Buchanan. Um, yes. that, he's important so in this, the story. 
Well, so what happened? But what ended up happening is okay. They, they just found a new uh, enemy to fight. So George Bush Senior oversaw the fall of the Soviet Union, and he just decided, okay, well that that's done. But now we're just going to go into Iraq. You know, like, like now we. I, I believe they are still fed, uh, funding. Uh, I want to say they were still funding the job. The dean in various areas, uh, regions during that time as well, but I, I can't remember for sure. Either way, um, we didn't go into, uh, um, a normal country in a normal time. They, they just kept the military, the CIA and the national security state and the bloated bureaucracy that goes along with it. And they just found a new enemy. And, um, so they kept fighting their enemies. The 90s, that, that was Iraq. Uh, but there, during that time, a lot of the paleo conservatives felt very, very betrayed by the right, um, because, uh, they thought they were going, they were generally like anti-war. They just thought they had this, you know, uh, exceptional reason to, uh, build for all this militarism, which was the communist or the Soviet Union. And now that the Soviet Union was gone, that we wouldn't need all this militarism anymore. And they felt really, the, the paleoconservatives felt really betrayed by the American right. So, um, they became uh, some of the loudest anti-war voices uh, out there at the time. So you had, um, during uh, the, the early to mid-90s, um, you had some anti-war voices on uh, the left during Bush senior, but he was a one-term president and that was a quick war. Then you had Bill Clinton and, uh, a lot of the, you know, the sort of the liberal, liberal, uh, liberals shut their mouth during Clinton. Jeez. And, uh, while he was starving a million Iraqi, ch- or half a million Iraqi children. And, uh, the loudest anti-war voices were sort of the paleo-conservatives. So back to Rothbard. He, uh, at the fall of the Soviet Union, I heard Jeffrey Tucker say on an interview that they reached, they went to a sort of a meeting with a lot of these sort of classical conservatives and sort of uh, Burkean types and paleo-conservatives and they went to like a, a convention with these people. And Rothbard was against the lying with them. Jeffrey Tucker was for it. Jeffrey Tucker was young. He was a protege of Rothbard. He was much younger. And Jeffrey Tucker was for it because he remembers uh, Rothbard speaking of, the, you know, the, the anti-New Deal that we talked about before, the, the coalition against the New Deal and the progressives. And he, he was sort of thought that they could rekindle that again, you know, now uh, with these, you know, these paleo-conservatives. And Rothbard was against it. Uh, he said, listen, these people don't believe in individual rights or individual freedom. We can never ally ourselves with these people. Um, if we do, it could only be temporarily on certain issues. But later on, he just didn't even take his own advice, and he did what he called redneck outreach. And um, reached out to these people just solely on the basis of anti-war, and he pandered quite a bit to them. Um, and you could say he did the same thing earlier in his career to the left, uh, but he, he pandered a lot to the uh, paleo-conservatives. 
Now, they were anti-war, but they were also very anti-trade uh, and also very anti-immigration. Uh, so mm -hmm. you got that. They're, they're passionately anti-war, but they're also terrible on trade and, and immigration. I mean, these people so, were worse on trade than, than anybody up until Trump. I mean, just for a modern context. Yeah. And, and probably they were worse. And actually, Trump was involved with that. That was Trump's first right wing dabble into. It wasn't really right wing, but in, in the populism, um, he was definitely a Democrat. But that was his, him going into populism, was ranting against the Japanese taking over American industry, which, of course, Japanese economy totally failed. But, uh, I mean, that failed to expand. It totally stagnated. It didn't fail at all, but it totally stagnated. But, uh, that was his first foray into populism was this, um, well, one of his first was, uh, this anti-Japanese thing, anti-trade, because, um, I don't know, they have, these populists have a real thing about America always getting the short end of the stick, even though we seem to be, I don't know, I mean, we sure have, we sure have a lot of stuff, but, I don't know, um, we're, we're, we're for trade, and, um, you know, they were going to take over all the auto factories, and, and they were going to, uh, Make all of our workers, all of our workers, you know, being Japanese, yeah, discipline we all speak Japanese. And I remember, dude, I was old enough to, I remember that talk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like when I was at, and that, that was the eighties, eighties and early nineties. You know, mm -hmm. I remember everybody like, oh, everything's made in Japan now, and blah blah blah. <laughs> and now, the, the, and, and like they're they're just gonna take over everything, and they never did. And now it's China. And now it's China. China. Now it's China. Yeah, so it's. And that's why I laugh at these people, man, because these people are in, 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 the, in these right libertarians are buying into the same bullshit rhetoric as China's taken over. We got it's the CCP owns owns everybody. The CC everybody's paid by the CCP. They run all the shit. They run all the um, governors. They run all the Democrats and everything. It's all CCP. And I'm like, ah. Uh, now I will say this: there before the, the idea of these like free trade agreements is nonsense. Yeah. Does so it, that's 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 a big problem that the sort of paleo conservatives have. It's like, oh, we got this free trade is not like when two governments get together and decide what how much soybeans are going to be exchanged for right. how much steel. I mean, absolutely not. It's what I what I what I want for free trade is me and some cat in Zimbabwe can trade with each other nobody else you know, uh has anything to say about it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, that, that's great to me. I will say also, too, that the, the subsidization, uh, subsidizing, uh, by the government of sort of these, uh, international trade routes, uh, sort of, uh, incentivizes, uh, uh, more long distance trade, I would say. Absolutely. Like, at this at this point, it's crazy to me that it's cheaper to make something halfway around, you know, halfway around the world and ship it all the way here cheaper than you can make it here. Now that's Absolutely. not an issue of like, you know, uh, specialization or free markets or anything like that. That's an issue of government intervention. Yeah, you know read, I mean? read, so it's like read Kevin Carson. Now right? he does great work on that stuff. Yeah, I, I think production would be more localized, is what I'm saying. Oh, yes. Uh, in, oh, yes. Free, I'm convinced at this point. Right. I'm convinced. Yeah, I'm convinced by, by Kevin. I mean, I'm not going to read another book for a while, but I'm, I'm still in homebrew. But, like, man, I'm, I'm convinced by Kevin. Like, that's that's absolutely um, – shout-outs, by the way. It's, it, um, go follow him on Twitter. But, yeah, yeah, uh, local produ production – 
Um, we're localists for a reason. I mean, it's it's the idea of of a nationwide industry and nationwide markets are already ridiculous. And but the the idea of um, international trade and now it's a huge boogeyman in American politics as a result. So that led you to uh, Rothbard in the nineties, allying with these uh, paleoconservatives, mainly because above all else, Rothbard was anti-war. So that led him to, into some strange bedfellows. Like if anybody's, I'm not saying this is a good strategy, but this is why what his reasoning was. Uh, he. He had some strange bedfellows because anybody that said they were anti-war or uh, anti-Israel, he was um, he would support them. So Pat Buchanan, he supported Pat Buchanan, uh, but he also supported fucking David Duke. Now, um, I the infamous David Duke essay. What the infamous David Duke essay? Yes. Now, everybody's like, well, we love, uh, Rothbard loved the Klan. No, I mean, it was a stupid choice for Rothbard to make, I will say. But that's not the reason he did it. And the reason he did it was because David Duke was anti-war. Because he thought, well, all the wars are for Israel and I hate the Jews. And that was David Duke's analysis. You know what I mean? But um, Rothbard was also anti-war. So that was the reasoning for him endorsing David Duke. Now, I think that's a fucking stupid idea, but that wasn't because he was like, uh, you know, this huge clan member or something. No, I don't, I don't think Murray Rothbard was sympathetic with the clan. I mean, this, I, I no, mean, not at all. It could have been another Karl Marx and see, really hated now, his... I think we can learn from Rothbard here. It's like, well, everybody asks, well, should I ally with the right or should I ally with the left? And my question, and my answer is always both and neither. So it's like, uh, you're, to, um, ally with whatever good folks you can find on whatever the side is. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's going to be tons of people that are just uh, awful on both sides of that uh, imaginary left-right line. And uh, there's going to be, you're going to find a few good people on both sides of that line. And, uh, you know, just make you know, associations with those that you think generally are, are reasonable, uh, decent human beings, and uh, you know, generally agree with you. And, and you know, well, that's it's like, uh, should I uh, ally with the the left or the right as a whole? Again, that's thousands, millions of people I've never met, and probably a lot of them are assholes. I don't. I don't I'm not gonna like throw my hat in with either. Yeah, I don't. I don't but trust I anybody. Find, I, I will find those few cool people that I can associate with. You know. Yeah, and, and libertarians should have a better idea of of, of what politics are because anybody throwing out the right or the left as as you like like they're they're going on about the left like like they're Tucker Carlson like there's no such thing as the left. It's a bunch of people. It's about a bunch of millions of people, and I'm I'm sure you agree with some of them on some things and not with any of them. I'm not with anything or with some of them and so on and so forth. But I mean, there's no such thing as the right or the left. And you always know it about, know it about your own side and the ones people you have your own sympathies with. But you always think that for some reason, these people always think that they're, uh, the people they oppose the most are just unified. Is it some unified unstoppable force? And they're just 
They're like the uh, 300 Spartans trying to hold off the massive hordes of uh, unified enemies. And it's, it's, it's never the case, because I, 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 I hear... Honestly, you know who really hates leftists? Other leftists. Other leftists. <laughs> That's the classic. You know yeah. I mean? like, same thing First with the right. You know what I mean? Like, they hate, they, there's no unifying the right oh, or yeah. the left, because they fight with each other more but, than anybody. I know that because I interact. I interact with these people on social media, both of them, and they both have to do the same thing, and they both have the same fallacy about the other side, and that's I, I find it ridiculous. Okay, one more thing before we got to wrap it up. We're going really long here. I don't know. This well, might no, be some. We gotta, I, might, we wrap this up. I might have to recommend people split this one up or something. But um, did Rothbard really go hardcore? Did he have sympathies with? towards the end of his life with the uh, very socially conservative right. And I, I, I kind of, what I'm thinking of is like, for example, even today I actually looked at a copy of it. Um, the uh, Rothbard Rockwell Report, or the Rockwell Roth, I mean, I, it's not even going to Lou Rockwell today too much, but where, where they're going on well, about... Rockwell was kind of a, I mean, he was always sort of a conservative dude, but he was a much different person even 10 years ago. Well, in 1990... In 1990, he was writing about uh, Liberty Plus, where li- liberty has to be uh, paired with um, conservative social family values and um, oh, you know Christian true. morality. Yeah, and he's always a conservative. I'm a religious guy, was, but last of, okay, I, I guess I should say he writes about that more now. Oh, he definitely writes he, about it more now. Right. It, it used to be war, the drug war. But this is uh, 1990. He's right. writing that, and he's saying, throw the libertines right. out, throw the throw the gays out, throw all these, you yeah. know. And um, believe me, look, I I'm I get where he's coming from, but that is not the strategy for um, what of a movement you need. I don't know. That's Was Rothbard there with him? Yeah. And... But I, I, when you say sympathy, I think it was more strategic for Rothbard. Mm-hmm. So at the time, that's all you had um, as an ally against the war machine, mm-hmm. and again, and somebody that was pro-gun was the sort of bigoted sort of paleo-conservatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't have any friends on the left then. They were all cheering for Bill Clinton. Rounding, uh, you know, Waco, babies alive Dan Arino. in Waco mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. starving Iraqis. So all the, the liberals then were cheering Bill Clinton on. And all you really had was the sort of like, uh, gun toting militia types yeah. and, uh, the, the, um, you know, the paleo conservatives. Now you're getting into something so, I can remember. I can remember at my age. You're a few years older than me, so. Okay. Yeah, you remember, I remember watching Waco on TV. Uh, so, yeah, um, I was right after that. I remember probably Oklahoma City a little bit, but yeah, I know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you kind of almost get a feel for that, because that was the, the era of like the, you know, the militias. I remember the militias, the black helicopters, all the conspiracy theories, all the militias. That was an awesome time, actually. I mean, that was very formative, but it's yeah. not for the people that died, obviously. No, that was not an awesome time for the people that died. But yes, that was a better time for the militias. So the but the liberals were all supporting Bill Clinton, you know, uh, lighting babies on fire in a bunker and starving brown children overseas. Mm-hmm. So um, all that's all you had for Rothbard 
was these, you know, these dudes were, at least they were anti-war and they were pro-gun and whatever. So it was less uh, an ideological sympathy and more a strategic alliance, I would say. But, um, yes, that caused him to absolutely pander to those types. And they get real chummy with Lou Rockwell, who, yes, was writing a bunch of, like, uh, socially conservative stuff, but that was like a, then, and even in the early 2000s, that was like a small fraction of what he wrote compared to the stuff that Lou Rockwell was writing about the wars and the, the Patriot Act and the Coventry of Guns and the spying on everything you do and et cetera, et cetera, during the Bush year even. So that was like a, uh, that was, you always knew like, okay, yeah, Lou's, he's that old stodgy conservative dude, but you know, he writes all this other stuff. Now he doesn't even write about that other stuff much. He's, it's just, oh my God, the kids on the campuses and whatever, he sounds like a 90 year old dude. The trans, the trans hormones. Yeah, oh, oh my God, the kids with their pink hair on the campuses. Pink, you know, blue hair, pink hair. Oh, okay. yes. And, oh, but I can't. Now. I can't um, forgive him for being the master. He is the godfather of Watertarianism, so I can't forgive him for that. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And he is the godfather of Watertarianism. I mean, right now he gets a lot of flat for other stuff, but um, I, I can't I can't give Watertarians any quarter. That's why another reason with the paleo is like that's the thing. If you're if you're a Watertarian, well, see the thing if is, you're is right, used to say he was pro open border. But he wanted to end the welfare state. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. kind of the right, that's like the super conservative right-wing libertarian but open borders position. Is That's how it used to be anyway. No, it is. I mean, I get that. that. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely pro-open borders, but we gotta we got to dismantle the welfare state first. Okay, I don't think, fucking, I don't know how that would make sense either, well, but, but at least they weren't like, no, we're totally, we need to keep the borders closed. I get that, but that, that was a better position to me than as a as, as coming from a sort of a, a sort of a conservative right wing libertarian. That was a better position to me than the closed border types now. No, I get it. Yeah, but I mean, the only thing is, like, I don't know. I don't, I, vast majority of welfare programs, the the, the the facts don't really line up with. Oh yeah, no, it doesn't position. make any sense, and it's actually totally incorrect. And also, uh, immigrants add more to the economy than they take away, and they can't collect welfare, so it's a stupid argument. Yep, they actually contribute. It was, yeah, yeah, it's it's entirely incorrect, illogical, and wrong. But it's it's still less abhorrent than we want a police state to close the borders. Yeah, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like to to say I. To me, to say I'm open borders, but we have to do away with the welfare state is I don't agree with that. It does, it's wrong. It doesn't make sense. But it's at least not uh, it's not abhorrent to me. Whereas, no, we need uh, to keep the borders closed and have this huge like police state and uh, bureaucracy to enforce borders mm-hmm. uh, is way that's to me is way 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 worse of an argument. And, and don't 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 make any mistake about it. Like that's the position from Bernie Sanders all the way to um, who's really right wing. I have no idea. Uh, Ted Cruz. 
um, especially on the end, on the either end of that spectrum, because the the social democrats need to close borders for the American workers, and then the Trumpists yeah. need it for the exact same reason because they're basically the the same political position, but what's one's more of a actually for a long time that was the, that was uh, more a, a social democrat sort of left labor uh, labor yeah uh, yeah that was well, it's whoever was labor supports position. it's whoever labor supports because I mean uh, Trump Trumpism is pretty much you know um, socked more like a fuck you sock them and then Bernie's more like a you know let's all come together feel good sock them pretty much yes yeah. so just to give you an idea like. For the longest time, that was that was some sort of like uh, labor Democrat position with closed borders, and um, e- even amongst sort of the radical labor movement, they were all for immigration control. To give you an idea, like Reagan and Bush Senior debated in the debate for president, and they argued they tried to outdo each other as to how many immigrants they were going to let into the country. So each one was trying to tell the, no, I'll let more immigrants in than he will. No, I'll let more immigrants in. Like, they were trying to be more pro-immigration. Mm. That was actually, like, a Republican position. Mm. And the, the the sort of the social democrat uh, Democrat party, that, that, that wing of the Democrat, that was the anti-immigration. Um, which is why you got, ended up getting a lot of which is why the paleocons ended up being so anti-immigration, because uh, sort of the the George Bushes and the Reagans and the uh, you know the sort of Rockefeller Republicans were all pro NAFTA, pro uh, open immigration, et cetera, et cetera, because uh, they were most of them were sort of rich elites that you know uh, a lot of them benefited from labor from other countries. Um, so the, a lot of the paleo times, they, they didn't like that sort of Republican, and that's why they became so uh, hardcore anti-labor and anti-trade. Like, uh, they're very, very similar to, like, the, the social Democrats of, like, the 60s and 70s. All right, so, well, that was, this yeah, has been an it. amazing you, discussion. Man, this could be, like, a 10-part 10, 10 series. No, sure. this was supposed to be a separate episode, actually. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm really glad we did it. All I'm going to say is that when I release this episode, I'm going to recommend that people make it's gonna. It's a long one. It's way longer than our previous episodes. But I think by far, yeah, like by far our best. This could have been, we're over, we're, we're a good chunk over two hours right now. Um, yeah, so this is... Um, yeah, this could have been a, a separate episode, but I'm glad we got into it, and uh, I think we touched a lot of topics that uh, both of us wanted to get off of our chests. Um, you've been wanting to talk about revolution and stuff the whole time, like way beyond what we talked about it before. I kind of want to talk about what's going on with the LP and everything, and I'm really interested in kind of where how we got from um, how Rothbard kind of synthesized. And, and I, I think we have uh, a guest in mind that we might want to get into a, a post and cap, if you will, that um, we can talk with, um, you know, eyes if, if, if we ever get him on to talk about um, how Rothbard synthesized all of his ideas um, into his kind of uh, libertarian capitalist ideas. And then, like, I think we did an excellent discussion of how we got from various libertarian traditions, um, some socialist, some very conservative 
Uh, one more really quick thing. To the right Hold wing. On. It'll be like yeah, 30 yeah. seconds. Okay, yeah, yeah. So all the things that we've been talking about, are I, a lot of them are ideas that I came up, uh, up with, like, sort of on my own. And it turns out that there's, like, a word, a term for all of these ideas that I came up separately, and it's called post-anarchism. And I didn't even hear this term until, like, a few years back. And I was reading it, and I was like, oh. And I, I was kind of coming to a lot of these ideas about revolution and organization and whatever else on my own. And it turns out that this is already a thing. Like, there's no new ideas. Oh, that's post-anarchism? Started. Okay. I remember yeah, those yeah, old... anarchism is like, uh, it's sort of anti-organization. It's anti-waiting for, like, some grand vanguard. It's anti, like, large-scale organizationalism. Um... It's like a lot more of like illegalism and doing uh, self liberation. It's a lot of what we've been talking about, actually. So I thought that was I kind of fit in that sort of ideal, I guess. But uh, okay. Anyway, well, yeah. um, I, I heard the term, and I've I really I I even remember where I was listening to this, but I I've blanked on a lot of what was said on the episode. But um, Joel from um, Non Serbian had a podcast where a lot of discussion was on post anarchism and. Frankly, a lot of it went over my head at the time, but I've, I've the term has definitely stayed with me. And okay, I think um, he has a he. I know if you go go look at his catalog, I'm um, just to listeners and, and to you, like uh, he definitely has like an episode where they talk a lot about post anarchism. That's really interesting. I'm I'm gonna have to revisit that. Yeah. yeah okay. I'll, I'll send you some stuff. But yeah. Okay. Well. Um. Yeah. So and and we also you know, I really like like to know how we got to the libertarianism of of. Our generation and today, right now, which you know, it's kind of budding onto a, a, a new generation of people, or maybe even a new generation under that—the Zoomers and whatever these younger than the Zoomers. Um, it's been a long, twisted road because um, it draws on so many, so much weird stuff that's been synthesized in so many different ways, and I think we um, we've been exposed to a lot of it. So there's a lot more to come. A lot more content to come, a lot more of these discussions. But I think this has been by far our best episode. And I think we've discussed a lot of the things that uh, I think both of us wanted to come to this podcast with, you know. These are things that we've talked about. I mean, there's a lot of things we've honestly talked about before on Discord yes. and yeah. whatnot. Yeah, so. Um, which Just we, not on the podcast. But. Not on the podcast. But, like, yeah, and, and, I've, and, on, and on Twitter as well. I know, like, um, people, even though you're not on there, like, people you know. And I have talked about those things on Twitter. And I mean, this, this is, I think there's a real demand for this stuff. So great episode, great discussion. And, I, and also I, I'm with you. I'm kind of hopeful for the future. And I don't want to say the young people, I'm hopeful for the, but I don't want to sound too old, but like, you know, the next generation of people coming up. Dude, I like them. I like them. My mistakes, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're, 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 they're real good. And I'm, I'm real hopeful for the future. They're, they're cutting out a lot of the nonsense that, and failed strategies of the past, you know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, a lot, a lot of the bullshits people our age. <laughs> to be honest with you, I mean, to be very blunt, and I, I hope that they rise to the occasion and kind of do better than what some of our peers, you know. And I hope this podcast. Yeah, I, I hope this podcast can. I hope we can get some a bunch more guests on this podcast. Um, anybody's welcome, no matter how big or how small they're following. Or you know their their reach, I should say. Um, Dave Smith. Honestly, Dave uh, Smith, if you want to come on our podcast, on the, 
the last podcast or whatever, that just having our buddy on, that was probably one of my favorite podcasts. We're just kind of shooting no shit here. Who was it? Which one are you with, talking about? With Drone. With Drone. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, dude, that was an amazing yeah, discussion. That was just a, a that was an amazing discussion. fun episode, you know what I mean? Because so, where we I, went with we that. You have something interesting to say, come on about it. It was a pretty eccentric, I mean, it really went into some, it really went into the weeds, but like not even the weeds, a normal kind of weeds, like it went, it went out there, man. Yeah, and it was fun. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, guys, stay tuned, stay tuned for uh, more great content. We're going to have more episodes, probably we don't, like this has really been really pent up, which is why it's so long, but we expect uh, more content with more interesting guests. Um, I I have some people in mind. I'm, I'm really excited to start um, getting with some people. Um, I really want to. I really want to discuss post right anarchism. I'm, I'm, that's something that's that's something that's now that's officially maybe like a three week old ideology. But no, it's a word that I've actually been um, toying with in my head for a long time. And I've, I'm, I'm glad somebody's actually like claiming that, and it's a legitimate thing that I'm seeing. So that and um, more on. Um, the future of libertarian unity and not disunity as, as corny as that sounds, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the world that you and I come from, you know, for sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, all right. Well, I'm, I'm signing off. Everybody be excellent to each other. And Oh, also read my article. Oh, Oh, well, I'm going to post your article, read his article, read his article. That was, it was a good one. Um, and it was a very good length. Kind of ties into what we've been talking about. Yeah. It, 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 it meets, um, you know, it's good for us with short extension spans, but it was a good article. It needed something needed to be said, kind of obvious, but needed to be written down on paper, right? Or typed up, I whatever. So too. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well. All right. Um, Peace, everybody. Yep. Stay free.